Oh, hey, bud. Um, if you give it maybe 20 minutes, usually a lot more people roll in.
Hello. How's it going, buddy? Oh, I'm really tired. Yeah, it's finals week, and I just had like two finals today, so I'm pretty drained. Oh, I I just don't sleep ever. <laughs> hey, did you Dibs? Did you see the um that new Ben Ven kit? That I think it adds like looks like it adds HDMI to the game gear. Yeah, so there's two of them, um, which is uh, I won't say unfortunate, but um, the first one is that one I tweeted about. It's uh, like an add-on, which is kind of cool. So you can add it on to an original, like unmodified. You don't need a LCD screen. Um, but then there's also his, this, the V2, or I don't know if it's called V2 anymore, but his new LED screen will have it integrated into that. So, uh, yeah, there's kind of two of them. Because... Ben used the same exact dev kit that I have on my desk. He used that Gowan 9K board. Yeah, I know um, uh, Zwenergy is using that for the Wonderswan uh, consoleizer. So, and he kind of talked about uh, redoing. Well, I don't know if this is ever going to happen because that's a lot of work. But he talked about potentially remaking the GBA HD uh, using that. So. That would be a rough process to say the least because <laughs> no, it's just, well, the Spartan accelerator has a ton of pins and that little Gowan board. They, so something that's kind of gotten me mad about those Gowan boards is they give you like, Oh, you have like 40 pins or, or 38 GPIOs or whatever it is, but you can't use like eight of them. Because huh. yeah, like three of them are for J or three no four of them are for JTAG, and you can't touch those. Like you're not supposed to touch those ever. And then interesting, yeah, you're, like you're you're not supposed to w- w- with these FPGAs and even microcontrollers. You're strongly discouraged from using the JTAG lines for anything other than programming it. And then I, I think on my board there's also. It's really weird. Like I had to ask Dustin, like, uh, you know, make megahertz Dustin. Like, Hey Dustin, um, how'd you use the Gowan development board? I'm like, cause I told him like, it has all these extra components that are really going to dra- radically affect like, so if I hooked it up to a Game Boy Advance SP and I tried to like digitize, well, <laughs> reprocess the digital RGB, then I'd have all these like random parts, like random capacitors and random resistors just in the circuit. And he's like, Oh no, just remove them. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, I guess I could do that. So I just haven't done it yet. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that uh, AI tool that everybody was messing with this week. Yeah. Chat GPT. That thing is so scary. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it will be cool. Like it really helpful. Um, 
but my concern is and, and obviously for code like i guess it either works or it doesn't right it's not like there's uh you can't really fudge it i mean you can always just you know try to use it and and fix any bugs or whatever but uh for some factual things like there's a bunch of memes like like if you've probably been on twitter you've seen all the people uh, posting about it it just yeah. says it can it can say just some crazy stuff so um like just wrong stuff so you can't necessarily just like strictly go by what it tells you as like being factual but it was a little, was a little scary when like <laughs> hd retrovision uh when, when nick was like <laughs> he punched in like Write me ver or VHDL code that converts RGB to component, and it was like exactly perfect. Like it had the coefficients and everything. The, the crazy thing is, it's not connected to the internet. As as far as like this, like it's not an ongoing data set. Like it's fixed. Like it doesn't learn from people typing into it. It can't connect to the internet. So that or well, obviously you're connecting to it through the internet, but. It doesn't learn. It doesn't, it doesn't find resources. So that's like crazy. Oh wow! That means they must have like just harvested a bunch of information. Yeah, I'm really interested in how they, you know, if they just like, yeah, here's the here's the internet. Go go at it. Like, how did it? How did it do that? How does it know so much about code? Right? They didn't. Yeah. Obviously, they didn't like train it like what did they train it on? like do they train it on all the documentation did they just point it at a bunch of forums and just have it like here's reddit you know learn from reddit that's, that's not fun because i i punched in uh generate uh what did i punch in uh i punched in a few things like um get a horizontal and vertical clock signal and i put the exact frequency and then I said, and generate C-Sync at X frequency. And it spit out code. Now, would it work? I don't know. But as far as, like, the syntax and everything, it was 100% correct. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. And, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm all for... Uh, man, I know this is not really retro-related, but, like, I'm all for... AI, I guess like obviously I think it will it can improve humanity I guess in a way until it's Skynet but um, yeah I'm just concerned about a lot of things like you see some things now uh, what the hell is the website uh, I don't know if it's Adobe there's some stock footage site um, where you can sell art and stuff like they're making uh, people indicate if it was produced with an AI but it's like I don't like it's it's those art AIs were trained on just not I guess stolen images, right? Like they didn't get the they didn't get the uh, approval from every single image artist. Like there's no way they did that before they just let it go rampant. So that's the part I'm concerned with. It's like you see watermarks and stuff in, in those images, and like I don't know just weird it's very weird uh uh intellectual property issues i mean i guess that's not relevant to coding stuff but 
I do wonder if people are going to like attempt to professionally use it. Like, oh, this is now in our tool chain in addition to the, you know, 10 other tool chains you need to use. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, like you would you would kind of think pro, uh, well, okay, I okay. Uh, not trigger warning, but uh, don't don't flame me. I know some people ha- may have negative opinions about this person, but I, I recently have been listening to Eli the Computer Guy, and I know he has some crazy uh, ideas. But he was talking about how there are a bunch of layoffs on uh, a bunch of tech companies, um, like kind of like quote unquote startup, I guess, kind of companies. Like uh, what's one of them? Uh, uh, Blue Blue Apron, just all these like Web 2.0 sort of services, um, you know. So obviously, there's they're not 100% software. Like there's physical products that they ship out, but they make use of of software and they make use of analytics and stuff. So I, I'm just wondering if there will be a time when like I don't know does does tech he he calls it a tech bubble. Right. So it's like a dot com bubble. Like it's just going to burst and like nobody, like people are going to move on from it or they're going to, there's just going to be other things after it. Like for, for almost as long as I've been sentient, pretty much. I mean, I guess they're like web 1.0. I, I was there for that and just forums and static websites and stuff. But, um, I don't know. Is is tech or are these all these like you know like uh, DoorDash and Uber like are all these companies tech companies that this is is that just a fad? Like I don't know. I, I every time I hear people talking about that, it's like I'll I'll, I'll comment on that and then um, we'll we'll get to retro sh- stuff. I swear, but uh, it it's kind of it, it just in terms of tech. Um, I've noticed that usually it comes in fads and waves. Ironically, like our hobby. <laughs> So, what is it? In the early 2010s, it was like phone apps, I think, and mobile gaming was like the huge one, and that's when everybody was like, "This is going to kill console gaming." And then, then it was like startups, and then now, like I kind of don't know the direction it's gone at this point. Yeah, I don't know. It, it just makes me think about my career. You know, I'm a software developer. And, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, you know, you don't, you don't hear about the, uh, the horse and buggy industry anymore. (laughs) Like, I'm sure it's a small, like cottage industry, some, in some big city or some cities, but that just got demolished by the car. And so you don't even hear about that, those industries anymore, or, uh, like coal for heating your house. Like that's just gone. It's not a thing. Um, huh. Weird. So did you talk to the uh, did you talk to Postman at all about his HDMI board? Because I I haven't talked to him about it yet. No, he he snuck that in uh, a few weeks ago. He there was some kind of a I don't know convention or some kind of a uh, I don't know presentation that he was doing, and he had a bunch of the consoleizers and then just one rando. N64 in there so that's I kind of felt it coming and then like a couple of days later or like at the same time he posted that the um, N64 mod is coming so I think he's just having too much fun going through all the consoles so like I originally I was pegging that you know Gamebox is like the consoleizer like a consoleizer company but um, 
it's definitely it's definitely which is is cool like I'm, i'm i'm super glad that there's so many different people i mean not just people but like you know, people with enough confidence, and I don't mean this in a negative way, like people with enough confidence to call themselves uh, like a company and operate as a company. Like, I think that's really, we need, we need more of that. I think that's, uh, that's cool. I, I thought a lot recently, just because I stare at it every day, you know, Twitter, I'm like pretty much always on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there's, there could, there, I, I, I say this as somebody who, obviously is not going to do this myself. Like I think there's a lot of, uh, not work, but there's a lot of opportunity, I guess, for people to kind of elevate right above open source thing like products, I guess. Um, I don't know. That might sound, that might sound negative, but I mean, I try to mean it in the best way. Uh, but we had, we had that a couple months ago. We, uh, I, I, asked that question where people thought retro uh, might end up or like, if it's going to, if it's going to like peak or whatever. And I don't know, people, people generally agree that it's kind of like a fad. Um, I don't know how many, how many more years, you know, how many, how many years is it going to last? But it sort of makes me sad because it's, it's not like it's a, you know, tech in general or, or electronic electrical engineering in general is a more, sustaining uh more sustaining sort of i don't know industry that's why you see so much or i see so much more success in in uh like 3d printing youtube channels and just general electronics project youtube channels that sort of thing is is much more successful than even like the sum of all the retro content creators And, and it's not a bad thing it's just the topic is broader the skills are are more broadly applied like there's so much out there um and that's why i have no problem i have no problem you know tweeting tweeting people's uh projects and stuff just to to stir up ideas right people might get upset if you i don't know promote promote copying i guess um and I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, promote people just blatantly ripping off other people. But uh, you know, ideas are are what elevates everything, and that's it shifts things forward over and over again. Like I know, <laughs> I know Voltar's here, and uh, ever since that, um, the NAS RGB uh, quick quick solder flex board thing, ever since that came out, like you see a ton of mods that just integrate the flex cable stuff. So. You know that's a that's a good innovation and, and just flex cable soldering in general um with with uh pixel effects and stuff and and dan Koontz and whatever like that's it just makes solder or just makes doing the mods much more enjoyable and, and easy i mean it seems on the surface it seems uh hard harder i guess but once you learn the skill you almost don't like going back to surface mount or um through hole stuff anymore so you have no idea, dude. The flex cables are so expensive to prototype specifically. Yeah, well, that's the cool part about those um, those generic ones that you can just get the connectors, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I I know how you feel, like just the prices for things, and that's why you know I sort of I sort of feel bad about that person who came into the Discord and asked if they you could remake that flex cable for that whatever the heck that was that 
oh yeah team thing and you were just <laughs> you were just like uh six hundred dollars and then you know that's not even kind of the part the cost of, of no no that no that does that does oh, count. yeah okay that would count it but i mean the guy you could buy he could have bought two of those on ebay for, <laughs> i'm not saying you shouldn't do it still but no that 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 counted even like me paying a shenzhen house 120 for six cables and it's really that expensive it's really expensive but like but when you order like what is it when you order a couple hundred at a time like like for example dan Kuntz, when he orders like 500 flex cables at a time the the price that the pricing is at, at that point totally different it's I don't know what it would be, but it's it's definitely not like it's all about volume. It's all about volume. Yeah, yeah. And w- w- welcome on, by the way, bud. Uh, yeah, like like I think the last time I did a flex I, uh, last year when I uh, when I was studying the Mega CD drive and I ordered a flex cable and it was one hundred and twenty dollars for six of them and I only needed one. And the lesson learned is I probably should have just soldered a bunch of wires nastily on the drive instead of using a flex cable. I feel like at that point, it's one of those things where it's like, how much is your time worth? Because like soldering like 30 wires, if like, if you're proficient at making uh, like ribbon cables and it takes you like a couple hours to make one and it would have taken you a couple hours to wire it. It's like one of those things is like, you know, how much is your time worth? How much is like the actual time to make the cable worth? And like, it's all, it's all kind of an equation in, in my head. If it's easy enough, just like whip it together, and and also another thing about flex cables is it, uh, it really depends on how big they are. If you get a small cable, they're like fifty cents to a buck a piece. But like the test pad quick solder flex cables uh, for GBHD Advanced and Quantity ended up being like two fifty a piece, which was way more than I thought they were going to be. It's just because they're so like long, you know. Um, but yeah. My philosophy on flex cables is pretty simple. If it's a small part, let's say that's roughly maybe four to six square inches, uh, and if you're doing it in volume, and that's okay. Um, if you have to have like really tight impedance control, and there are other things that you kind of have to have a pretty firm, tight tolerance over or with, flex cables are really important. Uh, you can't use an FFC cable. Well, you sort of can, but... You have a lot more control electrically what happens over that flex cable. But but if you're doing something that is um, – it doesn't require any sort of special, like, characteristics, let's say, I think that what more people should be doing is they should be investing in 0.6-millimeter PCBs and – they should be using those as an interconnect. So, for example, like let's take the Nintendo 64. You have the graphics processor that everyone butts uh, a flex cable up to, to to solder to. Those things can be a little pricey, and if you wanted to prototype something without spending a fortune, you could just design a small little uh, tiny 6-millimeter thick circuit board that butts up to it, it solders with castellated edges to the pins of the QFP there. And then you have a small little FFC interconnect that will um, you can jam a, a, just an FFC cable into, and you can pipe it wherever you want to go, and you can be as long. It can be 20 centimeters. It can be 30 centimeters or whatever you're doing. And you can pipe it to anywhere you want to go, and you can terminate it on the other end, wherever it's supposed to go with another 
uh, 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 FSC interconnect, and you're done. Probably, you know, you might have 45 cents in that, in that whole setup right there. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of these mods, even older legacy mods, could be improved so much. Not if they had a custom uh, flex cable design, but if people would just take better advantage and harness the power of the FFC. That's my opinion. You you bring up a good point though with castellated edges because like I definitely harness that power with GGHD because like just like slap that bad boy on there and then just like w- kind of it's almost like you wick the solder down the castellated edges and bam you got yourself a solid connection to uh to the pads on for the for the video connection so castellated ed- edges are an un- unsung hero too for real oh yeah yep um it was actually interesting that. Uh, you were bringing up uh, old mods, Voltar, because uh, I was actually doing some research just a couple days ago, and I've been looking into, like, some of the, uh, I guess you could say, like, some of the more forgotten mods, in a way. Um, one in particular that I've been kind of uh, been on and off of focus on was uh, YPBPR modding on a Super Nintendo, which... Um, from what I can gather is that it used to be like a really popular thing that a lot of people did. I, but uh, looking at how the uh, data sheet of the uh, BA 6592F or BA 6594AF, which were the two more commonly used encoders for SNS uh, CPU GPM 01, 02. And I, if I remember correctly, it's SHVC CPU 01. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't really doing this right. And, uh, I have been kind of on and off of like researching that more to see if like, you know, it is possible to, you know, bring such a modification up to more modern. Uh, what What's the word I'm looking for? Like. Uh, well, let me tell you uh, something about that. Well, I, I have some comments about that that may serve your question in some way. It might be utility to what you're asking. Those encoders, this is back when silicon, you could only jam so many parts and components on the dies of these chips. And a lot of things required externalization. So, for example, a very popular video encoder that predates this, the, the ROM encoders that you're talking about is the CXA1145. The CXA1145 has these really cool little pins that are called Luma and Chroma, but they were never designed to drive S-Video. They're there because they couldn't stuff all of the resistors and the passive components into the silicon to make the, to, to, to make the chip complete in all, of its, in all of its features. So they have to externalize a lot of parts. The BA6592F, the Roman coder and its, uh, its equivalent cousin, that's sort of the same thing, um, the reason you have those color difference outputs isn't for isn't for the encoder to drive a component video. Those are just there because in the chip and in the the if I remember correctly, the clamping element of that encoder is incomplete without externalizing these pins and hooking up some extra stuff. So what people started to do 
I guess 12 or 13 years ago. We're talking 2008 or 2009. It's been a long time. I think it's pretty close. But at any rate, a long time ago, people started looking at these data sheets and they started saying, gee, these things are ready to output component. We just need to connect a few components. That's just, that's not true. I don't think that those chips are ever designed to drive component out. And I've had a lot of people and I've seen a lot of people look at those and they've come up with all of these circuits, which this is also, it's also kind of funny. All of the application circuits that pe people have come up with very wildly, they contrast each other significantly. They're all very, very different. And I just don't think that in the 21st century, in 2022, there are a lot better and more efficient ways if you want to internalize an RGB to component, if you want to do a color conversion internally, I think there are a lot better, there are, there are better ways and better approaches to do it because so far, I, I think that those, I think that those encoder mods using the stock encoder to drive component out, I just don't think it works very well, in my opinion. I mean, I hope that doesn't, I hope that doesn't hurt your, I hope that doesn't take the wind out of your sails. <laughs> I mean, that's just not what they were designed for initially. It's you can even say it's running out of spec. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's just it's not something. It, it's 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 something that people have been trying to exploit out of this chip for a very long time, and I have never seen any sort of. I've never seen a good result. I've never seen a good result. The output of those color different signals, the co color components, um, for whatever reason, uh, is very nonlinear. And so it's hard to scale the video output with the, with the weird wild voltage swings coming off those outputs to make a to, to, to get solid, um, consistent video. It, 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 from, from what I can remember, now I mess with those, I mess with those things. I guess 10 years ago too. And uh, it was just a fight. I, you know, I was like, Jesus, just put a couple of op amps in here and some resistors and just, you know, use your, uh, use your uh, color coefficients, your color matrices and just color convert the video with eight or nine components. If you're just worried about Super Nintendo putting out internally and having an internal component video on, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but, but I get it. I understand why that's cool because it's, an, it's, it's, it's a chip. It's a, it's a piece of, um, it's a piece of silicon that's already in the SNES, and it would be cool to get it to do what it appears it can do, but it's just it's just a pain in the neck, in, in my opinion. Well, I've actually attempted this before with a uh, THS-73-16 uh, circuit, or more accurately, um, it was reworking. Uh, I had help from a guy named Helder. He... Uh, Re uh, help. Uh, he helped me out by uh, like ha he took an old PC Engine RGB board with the THS seventy three sixteen, and uh, we reworked worked it to uh, more properly drive the uh, YPBPR output. Um, I actually also uh, asked Ace about this too, and he said like when you run the output uh when you run it through the THS 7316 uh, 73, uh what ends up happening is that if i remember correctly it was blue uh phase blue was too high 
and phase red turned too low. So you had to, uh, so when it came to outputting, you had to ba basically tone one signal down, increase the signal to another, and then for Luma, since uh, we're doing a separate um, buffering rather than taking it straight from the uh, the multi out, um, you basically ju uh, just treat uh, treat it like you uh, would if you were buffer uh, buffering Luma normally. The end result was something that was not going to damage anything. However, I quickly learned the reason why the THS7014 was so prevalent. The lack of a low-pass filter made the noise very prevalent on those boards, especially through component. So I ended up scrapping everything, and then uh, I basically we're just, uh, just starting all over at this point in terms of figuring out the only reason why I'm so interested in this is because I find it interesting. Like I find like a lot of these ancient mods, very, very interesting. And I kind of uh, always wondered myself, uh, like, you know, because I had been looking at this stuff even before I even got into the scene uh, back when I was in like high school. And I was like, this looks pretty cool. Like I hope, that I could do something like this someday. Well, now I'm at a point where it's like I'm, I have a strong will to learn, and I uh, kind of want to start doing my own mods. And I'm like, why not kind of revisit some of these old mods and see if like we can bring it up to you know more modern standards. Um, you know, having a, a native component output, which my idea is to delete the RF module and then replace that and put like a TRRS jack right there. So that way it's a no, it's not only a no cut mod, but you just simply take a seven, $8 TRRS to component output, plug it in. There you go. Um, but you do also have a point like, you know, it's not technically designed to drive a proper component video signal. It's, uh, it's the whole reason why those exist. The phase blue and phase red exist to begin with is because it, uh, it mixes uh, the PB and PR exists or RYBY exists for the super, uh, for this encoder is because that's how it generates chroma uh, for your S video signal. That's it, right. Uh, so it while not proper, it's still like one of those things like I'm very curious about because um, you know I've had a couple of uh, failed. <laughs> Super Nintendos come my way that had uh, the mod done, and it turned out the encoder was shot because they direct tapped it. And looking at the data sheet, it's like, uh, no, you don't direct tap it at all because you're gonna, you're either gonna damage your equipment or you're gonna damage the Super Nintendo. In this case, it damaged the Super Nintendo. Um, yeah, that, that's another thing. I mean, you know, and, and you see this, you see this certain video mods like this across all of. Uh, just a plethora of systems like you know the, the, these chips weren't designed to like drive these sorts of loads and so when you connect these things up unbuffered you're going to pull these chips down and you very well could damage these chips because they're going to sink or source currents and they're not meant to do that they're not designed to do that and you can absolutely you can botch an entire system if you interface the wrong thing with with the right thing this is the same thing, of course, that's happened with Supergun technology. Unfortunately, that's all been radically improved over the past four or five years is that, you know, 
interfacing these JAMA logic, <laughs> these JAMA logic level, uh, TTL level video signals, uh, or with these TTL, these video signals with, with TTL th voltage thresholds to consumer grade, you know, 75 ohm equipment. And it just, they just get ravished. And it's the same thing. I've seen several Super Nintendos uh, fall victim to, to those component mods. And also, you know, not to, not to speak disparagingly, but any sort of component modification that requires potentiometers to quote unquote dial or tune in is not a very good modification. No, <laughs> I, RGB to component color space conversions is a lossless. It should be a lossless conversion. Mathematically, it is lossless and the video should be 100% recoverable. And if you're having to jam in pots to turn to get the colors to look right on your television, it's a terrible modification. Now, now these mods and mods like that, they were okay when you know we were only gaming on CRTs because CRTs are very forgiving. Digital, when you, when you start getting these janky mods and when you start introducing them into the digital video domain, it's a totally different ball game, and you just you have to be really careful, both both from an equipment standpoint and from just the way it, just the way it looks. It's just not going to look good. Yeah, a lot of the video processors now. I do. I do wonder how poor because you know these video processors they have a they have digitizers in front of them or an analog front end, so you know it gets the analog signal, it digitizes it, and then the FPGA does the magic. I do wonder how they would like those primitive. I'm, I'm going to call them primitive. Uh, those primitive uh, video mods, how they would perform now through a video digitizer and then through something like the RetroTink. Some of them probably won't perform very well at all. A lot of those, I'm sure that a lot of those, um, a lot of the, the modern era video scalers and interfaces that we have, they would probably lose PLL or their phase, they, they would lose lock on these old mods because they're not being triggered properly. Like, for example, and you know, it doesn't even have to be a modded system. Take something like the original Sega Master System release and even a few of the Genesis revisions. The, um, the color carrier that was embedded in the video signal was so wonky that uh, televisions would often confuse the luminance with, chrome, with, 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 with uh, the chroma data within the composite video signal. And so it, it, a lot of Vizio televisions, and I think a couple of, I think several, several Vizio televisions, and I think certainly um, some Samsung sets, if you, were to hook up a, if you were to hook up a Master System, or I think a VA3 or VA2 Model 1 Genesis, if you were to hook these old Sega systems up, they would have trouble locking and they would, they would desync all the time because the video signals just weren't as standard. Like the, the analog, in the analog domain, you can get away with that crap. But when you get into the digital domain, it's a different ballgame. Now, fortunately, people like Mike, Mike's worked really hard to sort of sniff out and, and remedy those unique corner cases. But that's the, that's the other problem with modifications. People will get so mad at Mike or other people, or like me, for example, because they'll have a modification that they had done seven or eight years ago. It's worked perfectly for them on their CRT or some device. But when they get their retro tank or when they get this new cable, it doesn't work anymore and they want to blame you when the reality is it's just a really bad out-of-spec mod. And some people are gracious and understand that, but, but a lot of people, they just don't want to buy that because it, 
it works great on this other TV, so therefore it should work perfect on this TV, and if it doesn't, it's your fault. It, uh, Out-of-spec mods just create a plethora of problems for everybody. I hate that. I remember very specifically one of those edge cases that you mentioned. 3DO RGB, for whatever reason, I, I, I do recall, Mike, I think it was last year, and it was, it was a, a little bit near the launch of the Tink 5X. And Mike, Mike even said, like, no, it, I, I think it had something to do with how sync was generated uh, from, the, from one of the RGB mods. I don't know if it was Dan's or Dujan Dance's, but he was like, no, fix the mod. I'm not fixing. Yeah, so I, I know what you're saying. Well, but, but you know, I, I have, I'm kind of conflicted about this because we have a we have a degenerate mod for the SNES, and we have a degenerate mod for the NES. And basically, the, the, the purpose of those mods is to, uh, very basically, just explain is to fix a bad line that's generated in the sync or the vertical refresh that throws off. It can throw off some televisions, and it can throw off, it can throw off some equipment because that bad line. When you're outputting the stock native resolution and the stock pixel clock, it's just one bad line. It's just one. It's just one error. But when you line double, line triple, line four x, line five x, you've just multiplied that error x amount of times, and it can be it, it can become problematic, and equipment drops out. Well, they developed the Degener mod. I think Marks actually developed the Degener, the Sync Degener, and Tim Worthington with the NESRGB kit. He imported that into his code base for the NES RGB as an optional firmware. The problem is, is I don't think we should be developing mods that remedy problems just for a specific piece of equipment. For example, those things exist primarily because the OSSC, it just can't handle that bad line that's being repeated. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but... If we have the power to remedy that issue by sampling the data in the processor, just like the Retro Team 5X does, it doesn't have this issue. Should we be pushing or should we be should we be offering a solution internally in a console just to get around a problem with one specific video processor? I'd like to know what everyone's thoughts are on that. Okay, actually I'm going to quickly jump into this because it's funny you say that because my current N64 that I use to, uh, you know, sit down and game on it. When I got that sucker, it was RGB modded mm -hmm. by rem by sawing off the multi out and replacing it with a VGA connector. Um, oh my gosh. And that's a classic 2009 Bob. I just want to say that's classic 2009 Bob. That's so, all I have to say. I they did what? The, so, so they sawed off. Like, they didn't even, like, uh, remove it. Like, sorry, no, they legit sawed off the multi-out because there was still a piece of it left on the board. And you can see marks that indicate that they used, like, some sort of uh, sawing tool, like, either, a, a, like, a rotary tool or whatever. But I asked the seller, I'm like, what the hell? And he said, like, oh, yeah, um, it was uh, – I got it from a friend, and he said that he bought it to use with the GBS 8200 because uh, uh, it, 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 it uh, only uh, inputs through VGA. And it, and sure enough, I looked at the circuit. It had not only a uh, 
a THS7314 buffering RGB, but it had had like some weird uh, sync dividing circuit. So it splits the composite sync into horizontal and vertical. And I'm like, what in God's name am I looking at here? Can you tweet like, some for- pics of this? Do you happen to have any, uh, have any pictures? I want to see a picture of this <laughs> so badly. I'm just imagining I- this like poorly hacked off PCB with just like this, ho- just this horrible mod. I really if, want to see. A picture I, I of had, it. I had pictures of it a long time ago. But when I was doing a, uh, but when I was transferring phones, I was uh, unfortunately not all my data made it from one phone to the other. So unfortunately, those pictures are now lost to time. Um, uh, but I, I gotta find find out if I even have those pictures in some capacity. It it was an it, it was a weird one, um, but. Yeah, I I ended up just removing everything. I patched it up, uh, patched it up. I had to source another multi out um, because I couldn't just use a Super Nintendo one. Too short. Um, but yeah, like something like that. I don't think we should be making mods to specifically cater to the needs of a, a scaling device, because first of all, that is way too specific. And say that you want to use that, uh, that console onto a different, uh, onto a different system. Well, guess what? It probably isn't going to work very good because, well, it was modded to cater to one specific use case. So you're going to have was, to undo. That, that was the problem with the NES RGB. As a matter of fact, I believe Tim Worthington rescinded all of the firmware and removed it. Uh, it used to ship with the DJitter firmware, but now I think he ships with the non-DJitter firmware, and that's because it caused so many problems with various devices that weren't the OSSC. The complaints of compatibility were overwhelming, and so he no longer ships that firmware. And that's, you know, I kind of had this. We had this conversation on the old on the on the old podcast uh, a couple of years ago, and I just wondered. You know, if if your guys, if you guys had a, a different opinion about that, or if you feel that, you know, leave those sorts of problems outside of the console and fix it outside of the console, rather than you know satisfying a unique a unique corner case that could potentially cripple the system and every other use case. I was just just polling you guys. You know, I, 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 it's interesting to me. I think we have enough. Uh... This is not. This is semi tangent, but that reminds me. I don't know if anyone watched the the Linus Tech Tips video where he, uh, like slapped USB power USB C power delivery. Um, like it, you can buy these off the shelf USB C to barrel connector c- cables. I guess specialized cables, and in the USB C end is like a chip that will spit out a specific voltage and you know he did give you know semi-proper warning uh in there but when you buy those usb cables they have a specific their rate they, they output a specific voltage and only a specific voltage so in theory i guess if you get the right cable right you can use usb c power delivery on a, a console without really needing to mod it but using those specialized uh, USB to barrel connector cables. It, it, uh, it's amazing what you're talking about. This is what you're saying is exactly why I have hated 
composite sync and everybody talking about composite sync for the past 10 years for exactly what you're getting ready, what you're discussing, because it, it creates more problems than it does solutions because it's not uniformly the same across the board and it may work and it may not depending on what you have. And you, and you just need to keep track now of all your cables. I guess it's, you know, if you're getting into triads and stuff anyways, I suppose you can go down the same, uh, have some of the same issues, especially with polarity or whatever. But uh, I don't know. It's mm-hmm. like maybe we're coming <laughs> coming up with solutions to problems that shouldn't exist. Now, you know, I'm all for better power supplies, right? Like more modern power supplies. But I think you mentioned a while ago, you know, you, ha- you have to be careful uh, when you... Um, you know, and I'm not going to bad talk anybody because I don't really know the specifics, but there are all these like Pico uh, power supplies, like internal uh, power supplies that you can use like uh, a a PC uh, power supply with to power them. You know, I I don't know. Um, Oh my God. I did a JT mod like that back when I was a kid. I put a, (laughs) I put an ATX power supply in a 360. It worked (laughs) and it almost started fires. It was awesome. I used one of those Diablo Tech ATX power supplies too, so it was just a giant, giant fire hazard. Sorry, random tangent oh, no. that just popped in my head. <laughs> it's you know the thing about and maybe I've misspoken the past or I, I, I didn't clarify this. The problem isn't really Pico power supplies. The problem is all of the vendors, mostly out of country, meaning I'm from the United States, so mostly from China. The, the generic counterfeit Picos, like Pico, that's a protected work. That's not like just a standard. That's actually a, that's, that's, that's a commercial product. And what's happened is, is that all of these other companies have effectively cloned that design. And so when we say, so Pico is just synonymous or analog to just uh, a, a switching supply that uh, operates off of a 12-volt DC input. And if you've got a legitimate Pico power supply, um, they're really good. I mean, they're they're very well. They're as good as the they're, they're, they can be just as good as the twelve volt supply that you that you feed into them. But they're they're very well designed. Unfortunately, ninety percent of the stuff out there is a clone. It's a clone, and it's a poor imitation. And I've seen some of that stuff catch fire, like literally, not magic smoke. I mean, combust. And um, I don't know the the idea of just blindly tossing these things. In the video game, in the video game consoles, and quite frankly, I mean, I'm not a power supply engineer. That's a total discipline to itself, and I'm not smart enough for that. But I would have to imagine that Sony and Sega and all of these companies that design power supplies or had like Marat, uh, Mutsami, or all these other companies design power supplies for them. Not being a jerk, but they, ha- I'm sure they know a hell of a lot more than the people who are just advertising these pico switching supplies to replace like i get it they're less heat and they're not as uh, they don't have as they don't draw as much power uh mm-hmm. because they're not linear but at the same time it's like i think i want to trust the sony part that's, right. that's well, my opinion p- power circuitry specifically i mean there's a lot more engineering that goes into that than say like just like a regular i don't know just some dc you know microcontroller board or something you know there's a lot a lot more that needs to be taken into account and if it's not then it can be dangerous because when you start dealing even just with like crappier parts for instance you know like like if you're not using a switching power supply from like a known company like ti or whoever else is making the good ones these days um 
you know, it, it gets, it gets dangerous. Um, like I just found out with, with GGHD with the, with the kids, I didn't know that these, these, uh, spe- uh, specific, um, capacitors weren't good. I just didn't, I just wasn't aware that the brand wasn't good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I it's things to look out for, but, um, yeah, with the power supplies, uh, yeah, a ton to take into, uh, into account thermals, uh, making sure what you're using has enough headroom uh, in terms of like uh, how much power you intend to draw. Because if you over overdraw the current, then you like start burning up the chip. It starts like it can literally burn itself out, and then you can start like start smoking and fires and fire hazards and all that. But um, yeah, totally, a ton more to take into account there. I think that like. With it, when it comes to those P, uh, Pico P, PSUs, I never like understood the appeal of them. Uh, like this, uh, I'm going to start with like the nitpicky one before I get into my concern. The nitpicky one is why are we going from using a standard, you know, figure eight style plug to using a brick? Like I hate it. I hate it. It's so much more cost. Like that 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 AC uh, uh, um, power connector is so generic and it's so cheap. Like you just went from being able to have like a thousand of those cables at your disposal to where you're going to have to have a twenty, twenty five, thirty dollar, you know, comparable twelve volt power supply just to use your flipping uh, Sega Saturn or your your PlayStation One. I just I don't understand the appeal. I think it comes down to heat, but at the same time, I, you know, who cares? They're designed for that. That's exact. That's precisely what they were designed for. The the, the original power supply is good. Service it. Recap it. Check all the inductors and everything. Make sure everything there's no cracks. Uh, but otherwise, you're good to go. I just I I think it's one of those things where people just get addicted to modding, and they're going to change yep. or in their mind they're going to revise anything that they possibly can. And that's cool. I mean, that's I get that. That's that's cool. But at the same time, sometimes less is more. That's it. That's all. I, that's all I have to say about that. The um, I think it first started when people were getting GDMU and then the Dreamcast Picos, because people thought that, because, you know, the GDMU didn't use the 12-volt rail like the original drive did, so there was some additional heat. But my argument against that is, like, you know, all the components in that power supply, they're rated for significantly higher heat. It's bulletproof. It's bulletproof. Yeah, like it's it's rated for radically higher heat. Like even even eighty five degrees Celsius, like it, it doesn't even get that hot. But my my point is, I think the sensation of let's use a Pico. I think it really started from there, and then it unfortunately bled into the Dreamcast. Or it's just like I think modding, you're right. Modding flexing, flex modding. You know, just because, like, it's, like, because you can, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Hey, just call me out, huh? So, what makes me interesting, or I guess back to what Voltar was talking about, and, and it's not directly uh, to do with DJitter, but it does, it does have to do with what we were talking about with power supplies. You know, the, the problem that I see is, and maybe this is just a made-up problem, but problem i see is that all these consoles that are modded with things like let's say uh like the triple bypass or um i know zach's is trying to get online this uh the uh pc engine sort of rgb output sort of internal things like 
people are people that get these systems in the future they're just gonna be like what the hell do i do with this like maybe the person who modded it or whatever sells it and doesn't explain it properly like like that's the problem that i see and that's the reason that i like you know idiot proof mods like the uh um okay not idiot proof but like adding the multi out to the nes makes sense to me versus you know and uh i i can't um uh, you know versus something like oh let's put uh i know tim worthington has the uh little component uh splitter thing that you could put like component output on the nes where you use that three um plug to the trrs whatever jacket whatever like no one's gonna know what the hell to do with that and then you, it's like that's what i see is the problem in the future is we're just gonna have modded consoles and nobody but us are gonna know what the hell to do with them well, it's already such a niche hobby, right? I mean, none of this stuff is – certainly none of this stuff is mainstream. And I, I just hope that – I don't think that there's anything that we could do to ever make it so that everybody knows exact. you know, someone's going to be able to open up a Sega, Sega Genesis with a triple bypass and say, oh, yes, I know exactly what this is and I know exactly what I need. Hopefully, these consoles will, over the next 40 or 50 years, will just stay with – you know, hopefully we'll all live that long because – you know, that's my hope. We're just going to live that long. And, you know, once we die, all of this is going to die because I don't think anyone else is going to give a damn about it. 30 years down the road, everybody will be playing on their, um, their FPGA emulators, <laughs> you know, which is cool, which is cool. I- I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. Red Herring's not here, so I could talk about this. <laughs> Maybe we'll move on to a different topic. But so I had a thought. And this is like a generic thought. What, and this is open for everybody, what mods don't exist that you wish would happen? And th- and this is like, if you take out, you know, if it's possible, whether or not it's possible, like, what do you think is a mod that is needed that you would like to see? Well, well, well um, go, ahead, go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was about to say, like, so for a bit of uh, con- Actually, you know, I bring this up way too much. The fact that I just cram rad two X's inside, uh, like Super Nintendo's and whatnot. Um, which, yes, I know some people are like, "Oh, but why not just use it externally?" It, it, it's just something for fun. You just have du- dual output on them. Um, but what I find alarming is that after I did the Super Nintendo one. I had people asking me, like, hey, what about the Genesis? Hey, could you do the Genesis? There was, like, a huge demand for HDMI mods for the Genesis. And it, and I know it's possible with the Super Nintendo because Opatis, Opatis, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his username, uh, you know, he found that you can get digital video out of the Super Nintendo um, with a bit more coaxing, mind you. Uh, but... With the Genesis, you, you can't get that. You can't get nat- uh, the correct digital signals required. For- oh, but you can. You can. You can. Hold on. I muted you, Fenris, because there's some interference for some reason. I muted everyone. There was some interference, and there was some echo back. Um, just make sure when you talk again, there's no interference, man. Um, but there is there is a gentleman in the Ukraine that's already in the process of creating a um, unmuted. Sorry, um, there is a gentleman in the Ukraine right now that actually has successfully created 
so far a um, Sega Genesis um, HDMI modification, and there is digital data that you can manipulate. It's the same. It's so I, I think you're misinterpreting that when, when you say data is not present, you might be thinking of digital RGB, but there is still digital video data. There's just some magic you have to work. Postman can de- definitely tell you about that because his recent project. Because yeah. yeah, the N64, it doesn't. There is no digital RGB, quote unquote. No, it's all about pixel decoding. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and, and it's the same with the Genesis. Um, yeah, except except for the the SNES, which I just found out about, where it's internal. So the um, video encoder, uh, the analog video encoder. By the way, I'm a total noob when it comes to analog stuff. So like, bear with me. I've been in the digital realm for a very long time. So this whole 240p thing is like my my segue into getting into analog. So please forgive my newbiness with analog stuff. But um, the chip that handles and Voltar, you probably know whatever this chip is called, the one that handles uh, the digital to analog conversion, because it takes a digital bus of signals, but then it gets decoded and then encoded into analog, I believe in, but it's all on the same die. So that's the issue is there's like a lot of black boxing that needs to be done with the signals coming from this, uh, this bus from a different CPU on the board. Um, so, and I was, it was funny. I was kind of thinking about this earlier. I was like, huh, I wonder if like a red herring approach where we just like cut the, the chip into a QFN and then just solder it onto a board and then have glorious HDMI <laughs> out on all of our SNESs. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The reason I brought up red herring before uh, was because retro gamer store posted that they're working on a Famicom uh, replacement board and somebody commented on there hopefully they're not in here somebody commented on there they said you know okay well why can't we have an upgrade why can't why can't we have an rgb board and and anybody who knows red herring he's like you know vehemently opposed to <laughs> messing with nes composite but um uh, i i said it would probably be easier to make a a, a famicom mister instead like make just rip to take out all the internals for a famicom and just replace it with a mister um like uh, a pcb that fit in there that you just mount your d10 nano onto so i don't know it's wild it's wild so i jokingly i like to mess with red in that regard because he has (laughs) he has thoroughly expressed his hatred for nes rgb and uh and uh high def ness because he's like, you're just shoving emulators inside, uh, uh, inside your Nintendo, like because it doesn't accurately uh, replicate the PPU and whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah. Well, that's that, so that's the important part. part is, is can you mute uh, Mike? Sorry. Um, the the important part is he does. He's not necessarily against RGB, although I think he would be against it. I I think you know the art. The NES is this weird case because a lot of the art does look better on composite than RGB. The reason he doesn't like it is like you said, the, is he, he believes that it's not accurate enough. Um, he believes that there's some emulator that's, that's more accurate than anything at the NES RGB and the, uh, even the, uh, Mr. So that is the reason he doesn't necessarily like people doing it. But, you know, I, I did, I teased him before saying things like, you know, it is kind of ironic that we use our emulated flashcards to play our emulated RGB when we play the NES with an NES RGB. But um, yeah, 
I don't know if I agree with that. I don't, I, I, well, I'm, I'm confident that I don't agree with that because by design, the NES RGB and the high-def NES are two radically different things. The only thing that the NES RGB is doing is that it's intercepting palette data and palette writes, and it's storing that in a memory on the NES RGB, and it's using the four extension pins of the PPU to reconstruct uh, the video bits, and it's getting, let's see, it gets the fifth video bit. I think it gets the fifth video bit from the sync, from, from pin 21, which is comp composite. At any rate, it feeds, it feeds composite through a comparator, and it's, it extracts the last video bit uh, for the DAC, and it is not emulating anything. Where the NES RGB fails is that the coding for storing the palette data and reconstructing that into an image sometimes gets funky, and it can even be down to it can be down to an out of spec capacitor that changes the ready state. So then the code executes a little bit out of step, and when when the system's not ready to accept that code, and you get weird funky colors. But ultimately, the NES RGB could be perfect. The high def NES, on the other hand, it relies very strongly on emulation to the point. And I argued with Kevin about this when he was designing it. The, any, the high def NES, it doesn't use the analog audio because the NES only outputs audio, analog audio. It doesn't use that because Kevin didn't want to murk up his perfect digital lossless video with a noisy analog audio being dacked into it. He emulates the 2AO3 CPU of the NES, and he emulates it so he can, one, get lossless audio, which I love it. It sounds great, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound perfect. The, the Famicom disk system doesn't sound very good in terms of like comparing it to the original. There's some discrepancies. VRC6 audio or uh, Castlevania 3 on Famicom, I can hear the differences. The Grange Point VRC7, I can definitely hear the differences between the high-def NES emulating that sound chip and the sound chips that were in those cartridges. And that, that's a big difference. That's a, that's a huge difference. The other reason, too, he emulated the CPU was so that he could overclock it and have a lot more control over the overclocking capability. So I, I get his point about the high-def NES. Like, I can see why that wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea because it really is kind of like shoving a pseudo emulator into your NES as like a complimentary device. But I don't hold the NES RGB in I, I don't think it meets that same criteria. I don't think I don't think that it's that sort of device at all. In in my opinion. My opinion. So I started laughing when you were talking about the the audio part for high deafness because uh, when Ace did my high deafness install, he literally took one look and he's like, No, I am not using the uh, onboard audio. So he uh, took the uh, channel one, channel two, the, the two pins from the CPU, then ran it through an I2S ADC circuit, and then fed it into uh, uh, into the uh, through the HDMI uh, port. So basically, it's com doing analog to digital conversion separately. And he said, like, and he mentioned, like, the reason why I'm doing this is because I don't like how. Kevtris implemented the audio. I think that it would have just been better to do something like this instead. I agree. I agree. But here's the thing. You and I would spot those differences. Some guy who just wants to hook up his old regular Nintendo to his flat panel television who isn't 
a stickler for any of this stuff necessarily. He just wants to live some nostalgia. He wouldn't care. And I think that's really one of the driving reasons for the decision, uh, for, for, the, for, for why Kevin made the decision that he made. And I understand that, and it makes sense. But I agree. It's just, it, it, it's not for me. One mod, I think, that uh, I've kind of been tossing it in my head, but if you guys ever notice the Saturn, for example, sometimes the video output is very noisy, even with um, new capacitors. Um, and one thing I've just kind of debated in my mind is, I mean, Saturn would require way too much work, but I'm curious if other consoles have the same problem where there's so much video noise, even on the analog, on the analog side. It's really, it's really the Sega consoles specifically. I don't know about the Nintendo consoles. They must, just a side note, they must have had like super, super good PCB engineers designing Nintendo consoles because most of those PCBs are pretty good. Versus, you know, you, you look at the Genesis ones; they're you know, bodge work everywhere, revisions everywhere. But one thing I thought about is. Attempting to digitize the RGB and then sending it out of a DAC. So the it's still RGB. It's just getting cleaned up and it's not susceptible to all the video noise on the board. That is just something I've kicked in my head a little bit. So I am going to mention this. Um, the Super Nintendo is not immune to what you just said. Like at all. I have messed with so many Super Nintendos to the point where the noise level varies wildly with those things. Like, you can recap every Super Nintendo out there. You can have one that is super clean. You can have one that's super noisy. It doesn't matter how, uh, if you do an RGB bypass. It might still have some noise in it. The, it there is just a, a random factor when it comes to, like... Um, uh, when it comes to any of these consoles, really, because, you know, you're not going to get, cons you might get, like, some consistent results, but in terms of, like, the level of noise, you could get a system that's, like, bone stock and have zero noise, but you can also get a, a, a system of the same configuration, and it's just, like, noise city. Um, I think I remember as someone theorizing that with the Super Nintendo, it was strongly dependent on your PPU revision, but um, I've... I literally have a collection of Super Famicoms in my closet that I've tested each one, and I'm... I want to, like, put a, a little ping on that, because I've tested like several different systems where it's like they have similar configurations, but then like the level of noise is just different between the two. So I think there's more to it than just simply, oh, this PPU is more noisier than this one. Yeah, I'll get back to you on that. It's a nightmare. It's a damned nightmare. Actually, and your and your experiments are. Are all the PPUs different for this Super Nintendo? Where yes, you, okay, that that was a pretty that was a very fast response. Yes, yes, um, different, and they went through subtle fabrication differences. I have um, 
I have reverse engineered the polygons of the decapped PPU A and I think the PPU C and I oh my god it's just a terrible nightmare it's 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 the most poorly constructed deck I don't know why they why they did it the way they did it, it's it's a string deck and it's really a series of three smaller decks that add up to a 24-bit wide DAC that, oh my, I don't even talk about. Let's just not even give it. Listen, you're giving me a panic attack. I have to <laughs> Sorry. Tell you. It's terrible. No, it's terrible. I, I, I've got it. I've almost got it under control. But, um, and, I, and I've, I've been, well, if you don't know, I've been working on fixing up the analog stuff um, of the two-chip SNES. The two-chip meaning it's got two separate PPU ASICs. And um, I tell you, I don't know why Rico, that's the chip manufacturer for Nintendo and the designing uh, team for their hardware. I, you know, Sega cared a lot more, or maybe it's just a side effect of their processes of developing this stuff, but Nintendo just did not care about having a clean, high bandwidth analog video output of the NES, which we know that, obviously, because it only outputs composite. But even the Super Nintendo, it's horrible. It's terrible. Like, I'll always say that the Super Nintendo, it has amazing games, but in terms of hardware, it is easily one of the worst consoles that, uh, that Nintendo has ever made, simply because there are so many failure points. Yeah, yeah. The, the Super Nintendo non-one-chip models have a lot of parts that are just susceptible to burning up. And so if you have an original two-chip, as I tell everybody... Go buy a part system. Go have a cup. Go have two. If you want to have them for the rest of your life, if you plan to live another 50 or 60 years, keep two or three with you because um, they're starting to go. Like, they're starting to die. It's the same with PlayStation 1s, which I think is really interesting. PlayStation 1s are starting to die. Not at, like, the passive component level, but, like, a lot of these larger VLSI ASICs, um, they're dying. It's it's weird. It's it's kind of strange. Voltar, what mod would you want to see someone make or make yourself if you had all the time in the world to do it? The one mod for any system. Yeah, I can tell you what I would like to see. Um, I would I, I I want to encompass everything. I want to see cheap. When I say cheap, I'm talking a hundred to hundred and ten twenty dollar. Digital video modifications for all of these legacy analog-only systems. And I've talked about this before. I think I may have talked about this a, 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 a session or two ago on this talk, but I don't care about advanced features. I don't care about any sort of line doubling, integer scaling, or anything like that. I don't care. I want a lossless digital output of the Nintendo 64, the PlayStation 1, the Nintendo, uh, Super Nintendo, all of these systems, because I want to jam that in to something like the RetroTink 4 and have a lossless digital-to-digital up conversion and have all of these features available to me from, but, but just by leveraging the power of an external video processor, because if I'm going to spend $200 on a, any sort of like these digital kits uh, like the Ultra and HDMI, that's how much they are these days if you buy them on 
word, they're more than that if you buy them on the secondary market. But people are spending a lot of money on these kits like the old H Ultra HDMI and stuff because they want that 1080p. And it's like, guys, that's out of date. I mean, that's not going to get you very far. We, we should focus on cheaper, low-featured digital mods that just basically don't do any sort of processing other than conforming the signal, basically just an HDMI transmitter as far as I'm concerned, just to sort of conform it to an HDMI spec so that we can jam this into a video processor. And the mod, the mod is never out of date because the mod is doing nothing but its job, and that's to get lossless video and audio out. The job will be handled by the external video processor, and that's what I want to see. I want to see mods that take advantage of externalized processors rather than putting all of this hardware that's really a lot of cost for the customer and both for the, for the manufacturer um, that, that's going to be outdated or that's going to fall short of its features in a very short amount of time. This this a hundred dollar N sixty four mod or like Postman's companies made this one hundred and ten dollar thing. It's never going to go out of date, and do you know why? Because that board and that modification is going to put out a lossless, untouched digital video and audio output that I can put in an eight K, sixteen K video processor seven, eight, ten, fifteen, twenty years down the line from now, and it's going to be as good as it could possibly be. So that's what I want to see. Take the horsepower out of the internal mod, invest in it in your external processor, and just get. I just want to see digital. I just want to see digital outputs on these consoles, for the reasons I just, you know, explained. Who else agrees? Who disagrees? I want to know. I want to know right now. <laughs> yeah, I think it only. It's not just that. I mean, the cost of cables and managing it is way cheaper too. You can just get out. You know, assuming it works nicely with uh, HDMI switches, you can, you know, get relatively cheap switchers, and the cables are are dime a dozen, and they'll probably only get cheaper in the future. Um, that that is a big portion of the cost, in addition to the and and uh, upscaler or even the mod itself. Like, if you want to connect everything at once, so that's a big giant pain in the ass. Um, yeah. As I understand, the only person that's made that mod so far, I know Dustin's in the chat. He's the only one that's really made. He, well, he yeah, he's the only developer that I know that has made a lossless format mod. You know. Well, let's not forget Ingo with the GC video. I mean, that thing is not. It's not a, a reacher. Uh, a reacher. A feature rich product. Um, it's just a very basic. Uh, you know, digital YCBCR to HDMI uh, um, appliance that, and, and, and in my opinion, like everyone's talking about, um, you know, more advanced mods for like the GameCube and the and the Wii, the GC video and the Wii the Wii Dual that uh, Dan made, and those though all those GameCube uh, all, all those GameCube HDMI mods, that's all you'll ever need. Like as far as I'm concerned, those are perfect. Because you're going to be able to jam that signal untouched into video processors in the future that are going to have a digital input, and you're going to have a lossless upscale and upconversion that's going to always blow away any any internal mod that's going to be outdated as quickly as it comes out. So I think I think those Wii and GameCube GC video derivatives, I think they're perfect. I think the DC Digital is perfect. It's another thing. Th those things are great. 
I think those things are a better value. I think it's a better value to sell those um, than it is to come out with a super advanced modification that you're paying a lot of money for. But eventually, it's you're, you're paying – what it's going to come down to is you're paying a lot of money for a mod and to have a mod installed that you're eventually going to have to plug into an external video processor because the features are going to be outdated in four years, five years. Does that make sense? Yeah, the only, the only thing that you gain, I suppose, is portability of a standalone mod, you know? Yep, that's true. That's true. It's a, it's a convenience thing, right? And that you have, to, you have to take that into account. If it's convenient for you and it's just easier and you just you don't care about having 50 systems, you just want your Nintendo 64 connected and it'll look good, that's the perfect option for you and that's exactly what you should get. It's interesting that you brought up the uh, the GameCube, the the GC video. Do you, you know, obviously this is not. I, I, as soon as I opened the Pandora's box that was GC video, I real I suddenly realized how poorly the GameCube video is uh, with like dithering, and I know what is it? It's four four two two or something. It doesn't have the, and like that's as good as it's ever going to get. And the moon, the moons in the video games are naturally much wider than they're supposed to be. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be. I'd yeah, be, so if somebody could, like, how would we be able to fix that? I mean, other than, uh, you know, that's that's something that I am looking forward to, and this might might even address something like the you know composite on NES is better than RGB sort of argument um, with the the four the RetroTech four K and maybe the more forever like the ability of adding filters that are. Well, maybe we'll need some, you know, I don't know. I think Mike said something about 8K is where filtering would be down to the subpixel level uh, more accurately or something. But, I mean, that that's interesting to me is, is you know, hiding some of the uh, – or improving, further improving some of the old consoles. Like maybe even the, like a de-blurred N64. Could you make that even better? Like, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, well, the thing about the well, de-blur especially, uh, as long as you have a good analog source – it wouldn't look so good with S video, but like high band with RGB, um, the RetroTink 5X has a de-blur that's pretty much just as good as any de-blur feature on board for any of these internal modifications. Um, that would be that's 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 always a good possibility to have. But interesting about the GameCube, though, people like um, Emu Kid and uh, Extremes with the Swiss software, they have tools that patch the game. So you can remove the dithering effects, the anti the anti epilepsy uh, filters, and all of these, um, all like in, the, in these um, bilinear filters, like you can remove all of that gunk, and uh, with software, with like like I said, with Swiss, and boy, the GameCubes are really different. It's a really different beast when you're able to sort of take all of these Vaseline filters off of the off of the video output. I, I hope we can see more of that. Um, I don't know really of any other systems that are as, as affected as the GameCube is, though, in terms of like stuff like that. That's something that I would, you know, I I, I really do appreciate uh, XTRAMS and anybody that works on Swiss or whatever. But you know, that's something that I think. Well, you know, I don't I don't enjoy you know uh, bothering people about things or asking people for help, or whatever. But you know, I tried. You know, I dipped my toe into the the concept of maybe trying to learn more about um, GameCube botting and stuff. But 
you know, it just kind of lives in, in a few people's heads and it's kind of difficult to, to get anything out of it. But, you know, I would like to see an improvement on, on Swiss as far as, um, the, like the front end, make the front end better. Like, I think we might be able to do a lot more with, uh, automating settings like per, per game and stuff. I know a lot of mods are kind of connecting with each other. Like I know, um, yeah, I hear you. I mean, that's the biggest, as far as I'm concerned, that's the biggest problem with the Game Boy interface software. It's phenomenal. It fixes all of the problems and radically, like, just improves everything over the Game Boy Player software. But unfortunately, the, the interface is just not very good, and it, it deters a lot of people from using it. A lot of people would rather suffer with the input lag, the, the input lag and the interlaced video and all the the crappy sort of Vaseline smudge smearing of the Game Boy Player disc simply because all they have to do is pop it in and use it and they don't have to they don't have to write a script to get all the features to flesh all of the features out that they want to take advantage of. So I, I totally I think you're totally right on that. I but you know these things are open source and so other people are able to come in and contribute and maybe help write a front end, but nobody ever does. It's really always I feel bad for them. It's always kind of these the, the the creators of these things are sort of always left to their own devices, and there's not there's really never too many contributions in the GameCube scene in terms of like other people coming in and contributing code or um, you know things like that. So it's kind of sad. Uh, Co. Yeah. Yeah. I found the pictures. Oh man! Oh man! Could you repeat that? Yeah, could you post them? Uh, post them so we could see the <laughs> the Super Nintendo PGA mod. I'm downloading them all right now, but I remembered I had shared it a long time ago in a different server. So I had to go through hundreds of messages to find the pictures, but I found them. So once I get them all, I'll uh, post them. Hey, hey, Dustin, I'm going to give you a heads up. Uh, Sunday's Retro Modern News video. So I found, I don't know really anything about this mod, but the X3CP is like that cool LED, LCD screen slash button thing for the original Xbox. Like, that I feel like there's a good portion of that uh, now being now like re- reproduced. Like they just did all the the uh, the PCBs for it. I guess we're um, I don't know, I guess open source whatever. And a few people now have 3D scanned the faceplate for that. In my video, I said, you know I, I kind of said you know make megahertz if you're watching this you know could you cuz i know you mentioned a while ago that the uh, that project stellar you you sort of hinted that if you you know that it might be compatible you might be able to kind of make it compatible with older uh screens and i was just curious your thoughts on that like oh, oh, well not only just the screen but is there anything that you could do with i know there's a like a four buttons on the front and then there's like usb ports or whatever like is there anything that you could do with that with with Project Stellar? So we've talked about that a little bit on our Discord. Um, the idea with Stellar is 
basically just to open source any adapters we come up with. So for the uh, X3CP, um, there's like four buttons. I'm not sure about the LEDs and things like that, but yeah, like the reset button or whatever has a LED. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of like general purpose IO pins on the Stellar, like expansion header and I2C and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't know if it'd just be a simple wiring adapter, but it's definitely something that would be like really cheap. And I've already committed to pretty much selling stuff like that at cost. Yeah, I just really like the look of that. <laughs> I, I don't ever imagine I'm going to buy a, a real one, but um, yeah, it just kind of got stuff gets unlocked when people scan 3D scan and then put the files on uh, online. So it's interesting. Hey, Justin. Justin, I have a question. Yep. Okay. First of all, Ryan sucks, but second to that, um, <laughs> that's not a question. That's just a, that's just a broad observation. But the 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 Stellar has. Wi-Fi capabilities to uh, upload uh, like uh, firmwares to, to code uh, various code to. Um, my this is probably a silly question, but is there any way that that device could act as a wireless bridge between the Intel NIC on the Microsoft on the Xbox mainboard and the device itself? On, on the, the Stellar itself, could is there any way? In other words, to get wireless connectivity, uh, not just through you know the the mod chip, but through the the the, fa- the facilities of the Xbox, is that possible? That's something that's probably coming like Q one. Um, Stellar doesn't have Wi Fi, but it's something I'm working on. As a, okay, um, I apologize. I I thought that it yeah, did. No, it has network. Uh, updating and things like that, but it's all through the Ethernet. Okay, okay. Yeah, the challenge there is making sure we can hit the uh, full bandwidth. Because you throw a uh, ESP or something at it and you're looking at like maybe 30 megabits a second versus the full 100. And the homebrew community has really been pushing the bandwidth on that port. I know, like some of the newer, like open source dashboards and things like that, can pretty much fully saturate the Ethernet port. Yeah, I'm really excited to play with that. Yes, yeah, a massive project, but it's a cool one. Did you uh, did you work on that thing we talked about? You know that one thing, the thing with the uh, <clears throat> the RAM tester, <clears throat> the RAM tester. <clears throat> <laughs> um, I, I think the plan on that has changed slightly, but um, something bigger came up, and I was able to get that accomplished. So I'm hoping I could sneak in something a little bit better than what I talked about offering. Oh, that would be so cool. So I guess I can expand on that because um, one of the things I teased on Twitter that no one really caught, which I don't blame because I do post a lot of really like high-level technical stuff, but one of the achievements with Stellar that was recently achieved 
is the um, early um, system watchdog bypass. And what that means is the Xbox traditionally um, and its um, system management controller has a little watchdog. So when the system turns on, the CPU has to complete a challenge or the system management controller is going to turn off the system. Um, this is pretty traditional on computers. It's basically to make sure the CPU hasn't halted or crashed or something odd has happened. So it has like two or 300 milliseconds to respond. Um, well, the problem with that is there's a lot of stuff we want to do at boot. Um, so I came up with a hack that uh, without uh, fully loading up the CPU, we can bypass that check and um, basically um, because the CPU is now executing memory from Stellar, we can um, trace the execution path. So still really high level. Uh, what that basically means is Traditionally, with the original Xbox, if there's a hardware fault, the system is going to frag, uh, flashing red and green. With this, uh, since we have full control of the system before it's even like fully set up the CPU or Southbridge or anything like that, we can like accurately capture where the system is faulting. So we can bring a whole new level of troubleshooting to the system. You're going to revive a lot of Xboxes with that. That's the goal because we have so many people come into the, our server like before installing the HDMI mod and after, and they're like, oh, you know, my system is fragging, and I see that, you know, this is an issue. You know, other people have said, you know, like, what's the problem? And it's like, well, fragging is just <laughs> like literally like the only error that the Xbox knows how to put out. So it could be anything. But with this, we can hopefully capture, you know, like if the GPU is dying or if there's a bad RAM module or, you know, something so else. Basically, this is, going to become, this is going to become the greatest diagnostics tool of, ever for the Xbox is what you're saying. Correct. And there's actually a hidden um, deep or troubleshooting um, point on the motherboard. I, I thought about doing a write-up around Christmas, releasing that. But, yeah, with Stellar, it's as simple as turning the system on and looking at the display of it's not booting. That's amazing. That's, because with the RAM test and things mod. like that, it still requires the Southbridge to somewhat be able to initialize the RAM and things like that. If there's a really bad hardware fault, it'll freak out. But with Stellar, hopefully... As long as it can power on, it should be able to output some kind of stats of where that fault's occurring. Now, it's going to take time with the community, you know, kind of like figuring out. It's like, oh, you know, it faulted here. You know, what does that actually mean? <laughs> but we can quickly dial down. Oh, you know, that spot is where it's, you know, enabling the GPU. So, you know, maybe we'll get like you know GPU caps and things like that. I think, Dustin, what you're going to see is there's going to be there, – there are two very important things that are happening right now with the original Xbox in terms of what's, what's becoming available. 
I think that your new mod ship doodad is going to marry beautifully with the new Xbox Live replacement insignia. Are those two things going to like? Can one can one complement the other uh, necessarily? I'm just wondering how. I'm just wondering if 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 the if Stellar is going to make insignia an easier ride for people who are just jumping on board. Like as far as like what? In, well, I don't even know what insignia requires. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously that must require a modified dashboard, right? Maybe I don't know. Um, it requires. I, I can't remember what it requires in the technical side, but it's very, very minimal. It mostly requires you not to have like a really old, like hacked up mod chip okay. bias combination that does a whole bunch of weird stuff that they shouldn't have done. <laughs> okay, um, I got. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. 90% of the Xbox problems come from, like, weird, like, legacy, like, hacks from, you know, two decades. You know? Um, the Insignia uh, developers are actually Project Stellar developers, too. So uh, anything they do, we kind of have, like, I kind of have, like, firsthand um, sight at. Um, we're integrating their assistant. um and pretty much any other fixes we can do. Um, I have a, a short list from the Insignia developers about things we can add and make easier. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I think that if you're if you're not an Xbox fan now, you better get you better get to being a fan because the uh, the the Xbox Live that that coming back, man! Like I can't wait! I can't wait to. I've I've had early uh, beta and alpha access now for like for a very long time. Unfortunately, I just don't. I haven't had the time to experience it or play it. But I've talked to a few people that have clearly like ran it through its paces. What limited availability they have for it, and I, the, this is the time to get into the Xbox. This is the time. It, it's happening, people. It's happening. I'm sorry. A uh, quick interruption, CEO. Um... I just posted the pictures on my uh, uh, on my Twitter page, so if you want to take a look, feel free. I'll check. Are you sure that this wasn't done by Retro RGB? I recognize the hot glue. I don't know who did it. All I know is that it was made specifically with the GBS 8200 in mind. And keep in mind, this is like before the GBS control, so... This is so cringe. You know what's interesting about this? They are... I'm just looking at these pictures here. And what's funny about this is the the little uh, collector buff, the little buffer here for composite sync, is populated on the on the N sixty four, so it's the composite sync is driving out uh, to the multi out to the to the pin where the multi out is. Excuse me, but they have uh, they they have something they have their own wire also going into the composite sync pin. So like I'm really confused as to what they're. Do- this is horrible. 
This has got Draken or Bob written all over it. I'm going to find out. I'm going to send these pictures to him tonight. Like, look like, how long look the wires are that connect to RGB. They're like almost like two, three centimeters, like really, like really long. Like they're just going to short to something. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, this is kind of how it used to be 10 years ago. I mean, really interesting little board down there in the bottom. I wonder what that thing is. The the orange printed circuit board that lives in the bottom of the N64 shell. Shell. That's uh, the the buffer board that they use to shit everything out through the VGA port that they what also graciously shit there. I don't remember what the secondary chip was. That that's the thing. It's been so long ago. Like the original, uh, it. I had the name of the part, but. I don't remember what it was, but yeah, this was like one of those things I found on eBay and I was like, why does it have a VGA port? I'll go check it out. And then I get it in and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, this is really good. I mean, this is, uh, this is kind of what, you know, this is the kind of hell I had to put up with a decade ago. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of getting PTSD here. I have to tell you. I bought it. I, I figured like it was going to be something special because funny enough, the reason why I bought it is because um, I watched your videos on like reworking some, you know, some rather dodgy mods. And I was like, hey, I want to do something like that. And then when I saw this M64, I'm like, this ought to be good. I got a little bit more than I bargained for. Um, um. I'm looking at the board. So there's a 7314 to drive video. And I can't tell what this chip is underneath. I can't, I can't see what it is. It's, uh, it's some sort of TSOP 14, but I don't, uh, or TSOP 8, but I don't know what it is. I, I, I can't even tell what it would be driving. Is that, is that driving sync? I think it's driving sync. I think it's driving sync. It does. So I, I do remember what the chip does. Um, it, was driving C-Sync in, and then it looked like, it, if I remember correctly, it had two wires, and when I uh, looked up the uh, pinout of the way it was wired for the VGA port, it was horizontal and vertical. So, it looked like they were trying to achieve, like, basically uh, a, horizontal ver- a horizontal and vertical split between both channels, but if I remembered correctly, that particular part doesn't do that. It was like a secondary buffer of some type, if I remember correctly. So it was like so this, so this, was, this was just a this was just this was just a GB HV monitor. No, to a GBS eighty two hundred. Oh, that's right. That's, oh, that's right. That's that's all they were using it for because they were like, oh, you know, we have these cheap VGA scalers. This ought to work. Yeah, but doesn't yeah, but doesn't the by the way, you might want to mute your mic. There you go. Um, doesn't the GBS eighty two hundred? Doesn't it sync composite sync on the horizontal pin already? In other words, is there any reason to to output RGB HV for the GBS eighty two hundred because the 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 TrueView chip on there it it does RGBS over VGA? So I don't even know why this was necessary to begin with. Unless I'm wrong, I could be remembering this uh, very incorrectly. 
No, it does. Uh, it does take RGBS uh, right off the bat. I'm gonna assume what they uh, that they made an assumption based off of the port type. Like they looked at it and said, "Oh, this is VGA, so we gotta make it VGA somehow." It, this chip certainly doesn't line double to 480p. So they were like, "Hmm, what does what what goes into VGA?" Oh, it has two sync signals, so let's put two sync signals in. This ought to work. And, and yes, I did test it on a GBS eighty two hundred. It didn't even fucking work. Well, it's funny. Well, it's funny. funny. It's funny. got a bypass or separator, but they don't have they don't have a decoupling capacitor for the seventy three fourteen. So, and it, and looking at this board and these long lines and these long uh, these long uh, uh, wires, there's. There's going to be a lot of trace inductance on that on that package. So, uh, if you still have it, go ahead and stuff a, a hundred nanofarad cap on the power and, uh, and uh, ground rails of the, uh, of the uh, Just do that for me, and I'd be really appreciative. Well, um, when I got it years ago, what I did was immediately I took it apart. I just removed everything, including the sawed off uh, multi out, which I forgot about this part, but it's also hot glued down. Um, but so I reworked that whole thing from scratch. I just deleted the whole circuitry. I did a recap, which wasn't necessary, but I figured like, screw it. I'm already, uh, putting in all this work anyways. Um, so I installed a proper RGB, uh, circuit, um, into it, and that's currently that's still my current uh, drive uh, N64 driver system to this day. Um, so I had already fixed this long ago. It's just I figured that since CO was so curious about seeing it, I would try my best to find the pictures because this is still to date like one of the one of the, the it's not the craziest repair I've, I've had to do. But it's certainly one of the craziest eBay repairs I've had to do. This reminds me of a year or two ago, maybe three years ago at this point. I'm, I'm so bad for keeping time these days with COVID brain, but there was an eBay seller out of Canada. I don't want to um, disparage or uh, slander the, the, the seller, but I think the, the, I think the, 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 the name was HDRGB. And they, I think they still sell RGB modded Nintendo 64s on their eBay store. And what I'm seeing here is very consistent with some of the things that they would turn out uh, for the systems that they would modify and sell on that e-commerce platform. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a hand in this. HD RGB. As a matter of fact, I, I did a YouTube video on... They're, one of their Nintendo 64s that were sent to me, uh, how not to be a professional modder, as a matter of fact. And uh, uh, not, not the same board and not the same circuitry, but the, the quality is very similar and consistent. So maybe this is one of their earlier, earlier workings. I actually saw that video before. And funny enough, um, after, so after your video, I was kind of expecting HDRGB to pull a Dojin dance, you know, Basically, be like, I am now a reformed uh, modder. No, instead, they doubled down on the horrid. Well, you know, the point of those videos were never to be mean or disparaging. The point was just to sort of gently 
you know, lead somebody to water when, when, when they refuse to listen in the first place. And I, I just hope that, if anything, um, th that people take something positive from those videos and that, um, you know, it becomes a moment of teaching for them and, and, and they learn something from it. So I, 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 people are going to react the way people are going to react. But, you know, it's just like you, you can't be doing this. Not only is it just unsightly, but this right here could be, you know, it's five volts, but you short by five volts, you know, in, in, in the right conditions, that could be quite, uh, that could be quite insulting to your home and to uh, the room that you keep the system in if things go awry. Yeah, and, and you even pointed out that, like, you know, using the, it, you, that you didn't have a problem with them using that old, you know, uh, eight pin, uh, eight pin to dip adapter. In fact, you even pointed out that if you got some component legs, you could just shove that thing, uh, right at the solder points and, you know, have a clean install that way. But the problem is though, is they'd rather have like long antenna, have the thing like sticking out from the side and they didn't even bother adding the cap on it. So it was like, the fuck was the point? Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's just the way it goes. And, uh, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, appreciate those videos or like those videos. A lot of people hate those videos. So I don't know. Anywho, that's an, enough about enough about that. God, you're giving me PTSD again. Uh, Zach, the crazy thing is that both them and Drakken live within 10 miles of me. So I've been fixing a lot of their shit locally. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. Probably in, probably, in, probably in cohorts with each other. Speaking of which, Game Tech still owes us that video on the other Draken uh, modded system. The one where it was like, it has like two different RGB outputs. One of them is VGA and the other is like, I think if I remember correctly, it was like a DIN. You know, we talked about that about five years ago. I, I brought it up to him every year. And I've not brought it up in several years, but we were going to, he was wanting to make a big deal about it. And it was going to be so much fun. Me and him and Kevin or Captress were going to get together and we were going to either do it virtually or do it, you know, in, on, you know, in person. Um, I kind of have regrets about the whole Draken thing. Not that he didn't deserve the criticism, but I don't know if he deserved a lot of the mean spirited stuff that sort of was just, um, he was just cannon fodder. Uh, but I just, you know, like, my goodness, put the damn hot glue down. Put it down and, and buy a multimeter. Dragon always said he never wanted to use a multimeter because he does his electronics by feel. <laughs> That's what he said. I'm sorry, I'm dying. He said he did all of his electronics, works by, of his electronics work by feel. And, like, you just can't help but make fun of somebody who says something so abhorrently asinine. So the hate that he got was for other reasons as well. Uh, first of all, he held on to people's consoles for months. And then he charged them, like, insane amounts. And the last thing that he did that really rubbed people wrong is that if he would get a console that's cleaner than his personal one, he would actually swap them out. So people were getting consoles that were not the ones that they sent in to be modded. I remember that. I remember Jason uh, Game Tech did a video of an AV Famicom 
and the AB Famicom that Jason disassembled that was in terrible shape was not the same AB Famicom that was sent to Draken. So yeah, I take okay. I kind of I kind of rescind of some of what I said there. Um, he is uh, deserving of to be in receipt a lot of a lot of that of a lot of that uh, hatred. But uh, you know, Draken, you know, good guy. Hope he's doing well. You know, hope he's hope you know the the stock he's paid into for the hot glue. You know, he's still you know living off his assets. And uh, God bless him. God bless America. God bless Canada. God bless Canada. So. From what I, uh, man, Draken was like uh, the first person I've ever learned like how not to do modding. Um, but what I find interesting is that anytime he screws up a console, it's always in some weird way. Like um, one channel that I remember watching when I started getting into like all this RGB shit is uh, Phone Dork. Um, somehow, some way, Draken melted the back of his AV Famicom for no apparent reason. Oh, he did that with the heat gun. So, Draken was very in love, very much so in love with these industrial heat guns. And Draken would often remove through-hole packages, such as, like, the DIP42 PPU and CPU of the NES with a heat gun. He would take the motherboard, he would keep it in the shell, like, he would keep, he would use the bottom half of like a top loader shell as his holder, as he would use it to hold his mother, his, uh, his, uh, NES's motherboard upside down. So he could jam 400 degrees Celsius heat onto it. And more often than not, while he was removing the CPU or the PPU with that hot air, he would absolutely destroy the uh, shells of his systems that he, and he, and, and for his customers too, as a matter of fact, he, uh, he didn't believe in buying the proper equipment, so he would just use hot air for everything. And I can't tell you how many chips he popped as a result of just thermally overloading them. It, it, it's I can't. I don't talk about. It. Let's not talk about it. It's just let's. You know what? It's happening again. So I yeah. really believe in learning from um, other modders. And Zach, I really appreciate the videos that you've put out over the years. Um, for me personally. Uh, the one thing that I learned from your videos that was instrumental in helping me fix a lot of Draken's work is how IPA is used to like so easily remove hot glue. That's a trick that I think very few people know and uh, is very helpful to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, isopropyl alcohol, great cleaner, but it's amazing for removing um, hot glue uh, and even certain two-part epoxies. Now, two-part epoxies come in various shapes, sizes, and flavors. Um, a lot of people, so in the, in the Deutschen Dance PC Engine videos, um, um, Deutschen Dance would use a, I call them Deutschen Dance, I know it's childish, but Deutschen Dance would use a certain low melting point two-part epoxy that was very po It's very popular in Japan to this day because Japan has a lot of um, regulations on caustic stuff when it, when it comes to, like, you know, epoxies and fillers and adhesives. And at any rate, people would give me a lot of crap saying, that's just black hot glue. Uh, you, you know, you, that's not, you know, that's not epoxy. And, like, two-part epoxy and, it, it, you know, alcohol is great for 
certain two-part epoxies. Uh, if you heat it first, uh, it's great for hot glue without heating it. Um, you know, it's just a really simple little thing that I can't remember where I learned that from. Maybe I learned that from game. Maybe I learned that from Jason from Game Tech, watching him fix stuff. Um, you know, in like 2007 or something. I don't remember, but yeah, guys, um, get some isopropyl alcohol just in general. Like it's 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 mandatory for all sorts of things. But speaking of DC Engine, though, um, so said Seed, uh, he, uh, he recently uh, put out a teaser image for what looks to be another solution for um, playing PC Engine TurboGrafx-16 games. And some people saw, might have saw in the Emily, uh in the Mleg Discord, but I was like, "Oh, look, another solution for the regular white PC engine. Probably gonna play CD games, but unfortunately, none. Nothing for the duo again." Well, you know, I don't well, you know. know I don't know. work exactly because the the flashcards. While you could play, you could you could get CD games working with just the hue card slot. The, the the hurdle is going to be audio. How are you going to get audio being generated from the uh, flashcard? And how are you going to mix that into the audio of the uh, PC engine? Um, how are you going to do that? Do you think that he'll put like a little RCA, like a TRRS jack on the flashcard that can be piped in and mixed to the to the console's audio output how 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 what i mean what good is it and this is not a criticism this is just a, this is just a question what good is it to play cd games if you know one of the major hallmarks of cd games and cd technology is digital stereo audio well if you can't get the audio out or if it's only going to be a mono audio doesn't that kind of like cripple that device? And, 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 you know, I mean, audio to me is just as important as video. So I wonder how he's going to handle that. So he might take the Crick's approach. So cr the reason why Crick said the Turbo EverDrive Pro will not work using CD games um, is because of the fact that he's repurposing, I think, pin one, which is a, uh, a cart detect pin. Um, so that's a, that's a pin that's normally used for duos to determine whether you boot from the hue card side or you boot from the BIOS side. Um, I think that also works the same way for the CD unit as well, but I digress. So from what I'm to understand, Crix is repurposing that pin to pipe audio through it. And I don't know exactly how he's achieving that, but... If I, but Apparently, that's the reason why it won't work on duos, because you can't repurpose that pin on a duo, but you can repurpose that pin on regular PC engines. But if you're only using one pin, then that has to be mono audio, right? I mean, if he's, if he's only using one pin to mix the audio stream from the CD side into the system, that would be mono. So, ugh. 
So the Duo, the Duo does, does, have, uh, does have a headphone jack, and I doubt anybody really uses it. Can it not be used together with a pigtail from the uh, EverDrive Pro to feed the CD audio back into the system, and then you and then somehow you... look at it in? So let me rephrase that. So he's using the Cart Detect pin as one of the channels. The other channel is going to be piped through the mono output pin, which is pin two of the Hue card slot. So he's ba- it's still going to be stereo, but it's... Oh, I see, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so basically he's uh, reusing one pin that's normally not used in normal... Uh, a PC Engine application uh, because, well, no, uh, the pin does nothing if you're using the Hue card slot. Um, but if you pull it out and you're running a Duo system, that tells the system, hey, boot from the BIOS on the, uh, on the side. So that's why it's not, uh, it wouldn't work that way. It's not that like you can't run CD games through the Hue card slot. It's just that you can't pipe audio through a pin that's, you know, not going to be, uh, that's being repurposed that actually serves a purpose on a duo system. Right. So that, so the, the hue detect pin, I think it's pulled to a logic low. Um, and so when you, so, so pin one on a hue card, I think is um, tied to ground on the hue card. So it's just a loop. And when you plug a hue card in, it pulls that, it pulls that, uh, that, that pin down to ground and that's how the, the the detection works. If the pin's like at a, I think there's a weak pull up on there. So if it's at a high state, if it's like at a logic high threshold, um, the PC Engine Duo will boot to the BIOS and it'll load the CD stuff. But if it's pulled if it's pulled to ground because there's a Hue card in it, it will uh, it will not load the BIOS. It'll just load the the um, PC Engine side only. I, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time. You are correct. Um... Under normal circumstances, it's pulled. Uh, it would be pulled logic low when there's nothing in there. But uh, what I'm curious about, and I tried re uh, going through the schematics over and over again. It's like, where does the uh, cart detect pin go to where you could feed audio through it without modifying? Because from looking at it, it's like there wouldn't be any choice but to uh, mod that pin to feed audio through it like in some way but apparently he managed to do it where you don't need to do that so i'm like okay i i can see how that would work so says so that 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 flash card so what's happening is that pin uh pin one of the hue card slot gets routed all the way out to the expansion port the hue card detect port uh, the port the hue card detect port exists on the interface unit so that pin goes from the hue card slot in the PC engine all the way out to the expansion bus in the back and into the interface unit where it's terminated to ground with a, probably like a weak pull-down resistor to keep it low until you plug something in. But the, the thing is, is as long as you don't have, as long as you don't have any sort of connector attached to the back that, that, that connects the hue, the hue detect pin to anything, it should be just fine. The problem, though, is is when you get into things like a, the, the Duo, I don't know how that flash card is going to work with the Duo because the Duo routes that pin to a little multiplex. I think it's, there's a little three. There's a, I think it's a, 
I think that it's a 373 latch, I think. I don't remember. But that pin gets latched in in all the dual hardware, and it just doesn't go out and float somewhere off to some sort of a bus that's exposed to the outside because it's handled inside the console. So I don't know how you would get that to work with the uh, duo systems at all and, 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 and be able to get the, the audio out. I, I don't think that would work. Yeah, that's the thing. It wouldn't. That's why he said, like, if you're using the Pro on a duo system, you can only run Hue card games. You can't run CD games. Um, yeah, that makes sense because he said there's going to be two versions of the Pro. There's going to be one version where it takes occupies the Hue card slot, and the other one, which is basically just his version of the SSDS3. So it occupies the expansion bus port. Well, thank I'm God glad. for that. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually glad that he's made a competitive gizmo against that company. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, are we? Can we speak liberally here, or like, are we? No, we, we, can, yeah, we can speak literally. Yeah, fuck that company. Fuck that motherfucker. Um, and fuck them. And I'm talking about Alex of um, uh, Terra Onion, by the way. That's all I have to say. Reprehensible human being. Okay, did, did I just get the? Uh, did I just get you demonetized? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I listen. I'll tell you. I've had some personal dealings with him. I, um, you know, I, 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 I helped them fix a lot of their analog issues uh, when they released the SSDS three, and the way he chose to sort of conduct his business, and the way he, the way he chose to treat people. Um, and the, the criticisms that he had for a lot of things, which were totally unmerited, much like the criticisms he had for Crick's in terms of uh, his status during the Ukraine uh, conflict and the sort of the incendiary things that he said. I, I just I don't care to speak liberally about him. I just I, I think that um, we shouldn't reward behavior like that. And I think that uh, Crick's has always been a staple uh, and a pillar in this community. And he's always released really good stuff. I own all of his flashcards because he's just, he's really good. And I think that he, um, I think that anything that would challenge that product that they don't even support, like all the other products that they design, they don't support them. Um, I think that's great. So I, I will be first in line to buy one from him. I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad. I didn't know that they were making, I, I didn't know they were making a, an SSDS3, effectively an SSDS3 equivalent that plugged in the expansion port. And that's, that's really exciting, and he'll he'll be very successful with that. Yeah, it wasn't like something he demoed like off of like a prototype thing, but it was something he mentioned in the replies of, you know, like the whole teasing of the Turbo Drive Pro that he was going to make a second one that um, interfaces off the expansion bus side. I'm like, oh, hold up. Um, so you're basically telling me that uh, you are, uh, uh, considering you're also doing the RGB blaster, you are uh, uh, effectively saying fuck you to Terra Onion in every single way. Well, he's wanted to compete. Well, I don't want to use the word compete, but he did state, it was like early, early last year, that he wanted to make another, he wanted to make another gizmo for the PC engine. And the photo that he showed, I, what I'm curious, I'm, I really do hope he nails the uh, the video pro, the analog video processing in one shot. I really do. 
Well, so far his RGB blaster does have one... Uh, I'm not saying that uh, it's bad or anything like that. It's just a little weird. Um, it only outputs RGBS, and there's nothing going through the composite pin. And I'm like, uh, couldn't you have just... And, like, I seriously mean, there's nothing going through the composite pin. Like, absolutely nada. And I'm like, you could have just put a 470-ohm resistor right there for a 75-ohm sink, but okay. Well, I I caught that right away when when he posted and he didn't have anything on the composite pin. And right away I said, I, I, I verified, like, are you regenerating composite? And he wasn't. And I mean, really for an extra, I think maybe 10 or $15, he could have used a AD723, which just gets analog RGB and give, and it generates S video and composite. And so that's why I've been skeptical for such a long time. Um, you know, this isn't going to work with the HD retrovision cable, the the HD retrovision cables designed to pull sync from composite video and a couple people went back and forth, and I think Bob's going to test it. Is what uh, I got the gist of it. Yeah, yeah. Bob Bob commented and said, "I'll test it." So, well, you can definitely use the HD retrovision cables with composite sync. The the problem, though, of course, is that like you guys were talking about, the the sync has to be the composite sync signal has to be attenuated a very specific way in order for it to to sort of slice it correctly, and that. Um, really, it's just a resistor, probably, that's going to have to be stuffed on there. I don't know how he's reconstructing that. I, I, I don't know a lot about the RGB black. It looks really cool. That thing looks really, really cool. Um, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, I wonder how much of the PPU Crix is emulating in order to rebuild the video frames. Because there are a lot of things, there are a lot of, you know, the, the PPU's facilities really aren't accessible over the cartridge slot. So um, that's really clever if he is like emulating certain sections of the PPU and taking the sections that he's emulating and sort of marrying them to the sections of the PPU that he has access to to reconstruct the video line. That's really cool. I've not seen it, but I'd like, I'd like to check it out sometime. Right. And like I said, um, it it wouldn't really cost much, and he doesn't need to regenerate composite video. Like all he would need to do is just uh, attach a simple resistor between the composite uh, the TTL sync output pin and the composite video pin, and there you go. You got your HD retrovision support right there. But um, I I did read that like a couple things. Like one, it doesn't work on cheap clones obviously um other thing is that like certain ppu revisions don't work with it and i was like that's interesting he probably just doesn't have them to test no i don't think that's it i don't think that's it so the ppu after revision d uh rpa two uh 2803d and 2co2d d is just the revision uh the uh ppu went through some significant changes on the die and therefore it doesn't operate the same. Um, uh, let's see, DREV and EREV, I think, and HREV. HREV especially was very problematic for Keptris. I don't know if you guys remember when the high-def NES came out, but 
uh, late edition 80 Famicoms that had the H revision CPU and PPU wouldn't work because Kevin, the way he was emulating those systems uh, or parts of them, um, it wasn't it, it wouldn't jive with those revs. So they operate internally a little bit differently, and that is why um, I would be betting on why the RGB blaster, excuse me, doesn't get along with the older revs of the PPU. The most common rev in the in, in the the most common rev is the G revision. That is what's proliferated almost everywhere, and it's 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 what's most common in systems. Uh, so, and it's and it's it's all the other PPUs are different, uh, subtly, and sometimes kind of more than, more so than subtly. Um, the, the CPUs too, for example, um, Metal Man's music in Mega Man Two. There's a certain um, sound that is not produced properly when you have a CPUs older than I think E revision. So D so C a D revision CPUs. You're missing that 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 buzzing sound, and it doesn't sound quite right because the audio circuit is laid out a little bit differently on the on the mask. Uh, that it doesn't sound the same. So the the the, the CPUs and PPUs aren't all they're, they're they're pretty different. They're pretty different. Yeah, the only thing that kind of chaps my ass about the RGB blaster is the fact that he literally just dropped it. It was a surprise drop. On Thanksgiving, at least it, uh, if you're in the U.S., at seven in the morning, I was still asleep, so I missed out on it because, damn, really wish that it was a night owl at that point. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm going to check it out. I, I'm going to pick one up at some point. I, I love, I love Crix's uh, carts. They're, they're wonderful. Um, I use them just about every day. I did I did wonder on the back on the PC engine card he was making. I did wonder if he was initially trying kind of like what Leon said where he's going to have like a little RCA jack and you know digitally draw the um, left, right audio channels. I did want, and I, and I saw that uh, PCB design. Like, like I think he sh- he took a photo of one of the EDA uh, pictures of like the actual PCB in the computer, and I couldn't really tell if he actually had it or not. And then when he had it assembled, I was like, "Oh crap!" You, I wonder how he's doing it. But I guess he's just going to try to use that cart pin. But again, this still leaves like the PC Engine Duo as the console everyone's afraid to really tackle you know what i would like to see other than like these 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 unique optical drive emulators which are great like the x the playstation one x station fantastic that's probably one of my favorites uh the saturn stuff that sort of works similar uh great but what would keep what would what would even the playing field is if somebody created an actual CD-ROM emulator that you could just drop in. Because if, if a CD, if, if we if we can, if we had a hardware level accurate optical emulator, there wouldn't have to be these unique designs. 
uh, they would just shove into any of these systems and then they would just work at whatever speed, like a 1X drive in this PlayStation. You just develop a 1X drive that, that reads data in. I mean, I think that is going to be what's going to sort of equalize all of this optical drive replacement stuff is when somebody develops a core uh, that will properly replicate all of the hardware facilities and all of the um, op- the, 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 the optical stuff uh, in a way to where you just drop it in. Like, of course, you're going to have to have like a proprietary interface physically to put things in, but ultimately, um, th- that's yet to be done, and I think that's kind of interesting too. I guess it's really hard. Emulating the laser is much, much harder than, you know, studying a microcontroller, studying a DSP for a couple months, and then, you know, capturing it on, you know, Quartus, looking at the, you know, the waveforms and just making, you know, an FPGA emulate it. Um, That's the gist of it that I've gotten, at least. But emulating the laser is very, very, very hard. Yeah, maybe maybe one day. I mean, maybe one day that will happen. But ultimately, um, I think that will be the next. I think that's going to be one of the things which will be the next big game changer is um, um, one to one emulation of like the optical bit stream. Maybe we might see that. But then again, do we really need that? I mean, one of the things about the X station and those sorts of mods is that they're kind of invasive and they have you sort of make some serious modifications uh, to, to the hardware in order to accommodate that mod. But ultimately, if we can get emulation off the, uh, off the ground for these, uh, for these optical drives, they're just plug and play. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that they're just, they're, they're no cut and they're technically really modless. They just plug in. Um, but like you said, that, that might be a lot harder than, uh, I don't mean to trivialize that. That might be really difficult to do, obviously. As I understand, Rama posted earlier earlier this year that he did have a emulate the laser quote unquote ODE, and he demonstrated at work. I think he demonstrated it working with some dance game, and it was on a PS One, like like the actual PS One, you know the the Anyone. much smaller yeah the the much smaller form factor one. He did demonstrate it lightly working. Um, I like I, in the video. It, I mean, it looked like this. The shit works, and he basically said that he did the, the he emulated the Reed Solomon encoding, which is you know that's that's part of the compact disc format as far as you know the reading the bit stream off of a physical disc. But which again, that does not sound trivial. Um, I think what Rama said was. He didn't want to push forward yet because really the lack of, if I had to guess, lack of FPGAs specifically would be the thing that would just not make it feasible yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That old Rama, man, he's coming out with some good stuff. So speaking of FPGAs, uh, it seems that Pixel FX is uh, ra- ramping up with a new line of FPGAs, 
it seems to be the same one that the N64 RGB is using. Um, what are you guys thinking of these new Chinese FPGAs? Um, I have, let's see, I'm using Gowans while I'm learning on them. Um, I do have an Intel board, but I'm not using the Intel board simply because even if I use the Intel board to, to get something working for like my Game Boy Advance analog video stuff, um, I, I can't buy an Intel FPGA. Um, they're, they're just not available. So that's why I sw- the only reason I switched to the Chinese one is because it's available. That is literally the only reason. And just, uh, and Dustin can speak on this too. My experience using the tool chains with Gowan, um, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy mode, but you kind of really have to know what you're doing and really be experienced. But by no means is it like hard mode in terms of like how to use the tool. It's not too bad. Um, I'm not exactly using the Gowan tool chain. Um, all of our um, designs are in uh, uh, me gen just so we can push everything to be formal designs. Did you look into AmLogic by chance? AmLogic, Mijin, it's pretty much the same. There's a lot of um, fork drama and stuff <laughs> that I'm not qualified to go into, but well, you know, so is it so? A lot of these mods, a lot of these, a lot of these modifications, like the uh, the video mods and, and whatnot, they rely on most of them use it like something like a Spartan Six, right? And the Spartan Six is something that's isn't that thoroughly into EOL now? That's an end of life part, but yes. I still see things that are coming out that use and leverage a Spartan Six, and I'm thinking. Gee, where, where are they? Where the hell are they getting those? And I, the only thing I can think of is maybe they're pulling these parts off the secondary market from like Shenzhen or something. And I'm just wondering where the hell are they sourcing these things at this point? Because everywhere I look, they're gone. Like you're, they're just unobtainium. They're un, they're unobtainium now. Um, does anyone know the secrets? Just good old shake and bake chips, you know. Yeah, Mike Chino's all about. It. I bet I bet Mike Chino's responsible <laughs> for this. By the way, he's in here. Mike, you're in here. I know that you're responsible for this. I mean, if anyone has legacy des- designs they're looking to port over, uh, we're putting together a small team. Um, I'm not the only developer anymore, so feel free to get in touch. Um, so are the are the Chinese are the the Chinese. Um, these these Chinese FPGAs are they a new answer? Are they are, are, is there emergence from the um, dry inventory um, supply chains? Because isn't this sort of like what happened with the um, so there, there's an STM32 equivalent now that's a Chinese uh, clone basically, but it has all the same registers and and it's it's totally code and pin compatible. And I think that was also uh, an answer to the like the COVID dry supplies, as we call it now, is that where these things came from, or were these things always in the 
wheelhouse. No one just ever used them until supply for all of these other things uh, dried up. There was rumors uh, like five or six years ago about Galwin using like stolen uh, Xilinx IP. <clears throat> then they kind of disappeared for a couple of years and came back with a whole bunch of uh, funding. Um, not sure how true that is, but they're definitely building a whole bunch of stuff out in-house, and it seems like they're going for that corner of the market very strongly. Um, is it affordable? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very surprised because Intel paid a fortune for Altera, and for them not to release any FPGAs doesn't make sense to me. Oh, they're they're being released. They're just being oh, yeah. released to the people that are buying like three million at a time, or Our people blink checks. You know, I mean, if you have a medical device that has some obscure FPGA, you know, you'll spend a hundred k on a chip if you need it, or anything for space applications. Those are still being produced, albeit in ridiculously low volume and still ridiculously priced. Um, side note, I, I did think the Analogic FPGAs, when I was trying to find information about them, I they looked like a clone of, well, in, in terms of like the, at least the tools, very specifically the tools, looked like a clone of the Lattice tools. But then, then again, the Lattice tools do have like an open source tool chain. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess you can't really say it's a clone, but I kind of inferred that. And you also there's absolutely zero English documentation for Analogic FPGAs. There, yeah, um, Galwin is about as Chinese. I'll really go. Um, actually, I have a meeting with one of uh, their U.S. reps or distributor reps next week to go over some things. Um, but yeah, um, Galwin is really interesting. Um, documentation is kind of light in some places uh their ip um kind of sketchy just in terms of quality um i've reverse engineered and decompiled quite a few we're not actually using any of uh gowan's ip but um yeah it's interesting the one interesting thing i found about the gowans is I haven't seen another FPGA that does this because, you know, most FPGAs, I'd say like 98% of them now. Okay, maybe okay, maybe it's like 90%. They're all SRAM based. And the Gowans, I mean, yeah, it's all S. There's SRAM and then they have an additional uh, PSRAM. Like it's a totally, it's something I've never read in any other documentation. Um, I, I think, what is it? And I was getting really confused. In, well, the Gowan one... The Gowan 1 series, which is broken up into a couple of different uh, subfamilies, I'm pretty sure all of those are... They're SRAM-based for the FPGA core. Then they have um, the NR series, which can come with uh, SDRAM or uh, PSRAM. So for Project Stellar, Project Stellar is using the... uh, um, sorry, the one NR um 4K. 
so like 4,000 um, logic units, but it's the uh, SD RAM variant. So now, we get 8 one, megabytes of SD RAM. One question, since you're exclusively using that. Does the 4K and the 9K, the documentation is so confusing. It is. is it? Is it... <laughs> Is it only the 9K that has PS RAM? No. You can DM me and I can point you to the data sheet, but pretty much they have this big matrix of part numbers. And you can pretty much get, I believe, any of the one series with either one. A couple of them are limited to a couple of uh, packages, but they go back and forth. Is you have to hunt them down because I know the SD RAM variant is not as common, but I had more trust in the SD RAM cores that I've used in the past. So with uh, Project Stellar, it's a uh, LIDEX um, infrastructure with a uh, wishbone uh, interface for all of the, the different bus peripherals. And all of that's like really like fucking like straightforward to like test and verify and get going quick. So, is there anything specific that you need to do with SD RAM based FPGAs uh, versus SRAM? Is there any differences in how you develop for them, or is that transparent to the developer? If you're using an IP core that handles the initialization, pretty much transparent um i, I say pretty much because I, I was talking to postman and I, I realized that a lot of people are still not using you know like proper like buses and things like that for some of their designs um for us it's pretty much transparent um besides like doing some like sd ram like initialization and things like that but depending on your tool chain and your what you actually use is pretty transparent, I guess. I have a question. I'm sorry. I have something in my mouth. I know it's incredibly rude. But would you guys say that now the, the, prolifer- the, the proliferation of these Chinese FPGAs does this mean effectively that, and you guys would know a lot more about this than I would, that the drought is effectively over, that there is supply? It might not be a Xilinx supply or an Altera supply, but there is a supply and that there is an option for developers of these sort of products that rely on them in our community to move forward with. Or is it such an arduous task to port their, VH, their code over that it's really worth it for them in terms of time just to wait the extra 16 years for, uh, you know, some new Spartans to come out or something. You guys have any commentary about that? My only commentary is uh, it's always a software problem. I mean, if you have the team and the skills to get it done, there's hardly ever a true, like, drought of parts. Um, Everything we're designing is for the most part, platform agnostic, all of our um, high-level descriptive stuff is written in Python. Um, 
but yeah, it does open the doors. Um, it just comes down to if people are willing to invest the time in a new platform and all of that. Is there a mechanism that the FPGA can report itself so that when, if you do have devices that upgrade over Wi-Fi, for example, uh, they know which hex file to pull down if you're using an Altera part versus a Chinese part? Um, that would just be part of your stack. Um, yeah. <laughs> Cause at the end of the day, you're either going to have like an external, like microcontroller that's going to be taking up, you know, most of that logic or like a soft core. And you would just, you know, request from your download server and, you know, Hey, this is, you know, this part, you know, give me this, you know, firmware. I just want to say on the record that it is, uh, to my understanding, that Mike Chi of RetroTink is the uh, master of softcore, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, regarding <laughs> regarding the um, issue with uh, the newer FPGA, the at least the Chinese, um, the Chinese domestic FPGAs. Um, I think what it really boils down to is if you're spending X amount of development time around a specific framework, you're using a very specific IP core. Let's say, you know, it's an Intel framework or even, you know, you're using IP tools that are associated with like, what is it? Uh, Vivado, I think with the newer Xilinx ones. And you just do that for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden it's okay. We can't get this until, you know, 20, you know, 2060 or whatever, you know, whatever, because, you know, nothing's available. Um, then it turns into, okay, now I have to backport everything into some other, again, an FPGA chip that has a 400 and 500 page data sheet. And now you have to spend basically twice the amount of, well, okay, maybe not twice the amount, but a radical amount of time backporting all of that to include the, I, you know, if you're using IPs from that vendor, now you have to figure out the IPs of the new vendor. This is just my opinion of the matter, at least. As a software developer, I mean, that's primarily focused on like desktop and web for most of my career. Developing uh, software that's not platform agnostic is just a terrible idea. If you're you know putting that much effort into cores and stacks that you have no control over the only person you can blame is yourself actually speaking of like fpgas and things like that um uh there was one thing i noticed about the 64 hd and i wish i could could have talked to postman about this the fpga he used is a spartan 6 and i was like hold up that's the same fpga that uh the retro usb abs is powered by so it got me thinking like are there like other older or uh, older fpgas that could possibly be repurposed for like uh different applications that you know are would normally be occupied by something a little bit more advanced i think you know it's really go ahead postman oh i think postman i think he bought like I mean, not, I don't know the exact amount, but he bought a considerable amount, like 
way back when, when he's like, okay, this is something I want to do. And he got, and I, I don't know if it was like, oh no, the shortage is coming. I better get a couple thousand or however many it was. And he got them. That's as I understand, he pretty, he pretty much stockpiled those and then started the project. I might be mistaken, but that's how I understand it. The one thing that, you know, and I think this goes, this is sort of a sentiment that touches every sort of like hobby and sort of like shtick. But one of the things that I particularly don't care for when it comes to FPGAs or even CPLDs for that matter is the, um, I'll use, I'll pick on Mike for a second with the retro team. Um, a lot of people, I don't know, I'm not going to say a lot of people, but there are people who wanted to relegate the capabilities or performance of the RetroTink 5X based on how many logic elements that the FPGA has or how dense the logic elements are in the FPGA that it has. And I just, this is just a personal opinion of mine, but like, I don't like, I don't like it when people are producing a product uh, or they're coming up with some sort of mod. And I'm not talking about anyone specifically. I've just noticed this in, in, on forum threads and places on, on, on Twitter. I'm not talking about anyone specifically. Just, this is just a general assessment of, um, of things that I've seen. I don't like how products are literally being quantified by how powerful the, uh, the FPGA is or how, um, how much logic is in that thing. I, I really hope that in the next few years, through public education of some sort, we can sort of like as a as a team, as a family, because you know we're family, we can dispel a lot of this um, silliness about what FPGAs are and what FPGAs aren't, and why less isn't always more, and why more is sometimes less. And I don't know if you guys have experienced that. Like I know, for example, I think that. Well, I'll also pick on uh, Dustin. Like, I've had people say that, you know, the Xbox HD, the HD Plus, it doesn't use a very powerful, um, it doesn't have a lot of powerful logic um, as the engine, so therefore it can't be that good. In my opinion, I think the Xbox HDMI mod that, they, that Make Megahertz has made is probably the best HDMI mod that has ever come out for any legacy system ever up until this point. And I don't mean to go up on a tangent about this, but I'm just wondering, have you guys both as just like people like behind the scenes and makers yourselves, have you, I don't use the word discriminate, but do you feel like you've been kind of, you know, discriminated because, you know, of, of just merely the parts that you chose to use on your BOM? Does, it, does that make sense? I'll let someone else speak really quickly as I update our product pages to add how many logical cores the FPGA has. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Are you making a joke or are you being serious? Is that really what you're saying right now? I don't know. I might do it later. Um, Okay. Yeah. um, I don't know where to start. My biggest thing is I sell products for preservation, expansion, just exploring, adding cool shit. Um, I don't know. The spec sheets are boring at the end of the day. Um, you can get by with a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what yeah, we're doing, yeah. what 
Xbox HD, I mean, um, I've discovered undocumented registers. I've discovered certain parts of the GPU, the motherboards, things that have like dissolved into people fixing boards or um, patches for Xbox simulation. Um, I don't know. I think people just get hung up on things that they shouldn't. Um, well, you know, and, and just the, you know, there was a situation too where it was when the and this wasn't this comment wasn't made by anyone affiliated with the uh, with uh, the uh, GBHD, but there was a large, very popular uh, thread, a Reddit thread, where somebody said um, that the GBHD, the GBAHD, was automatically better and vastly superior to the GBA consoleizer simply because the GBA HD uses a Spartan 7, whereas I think the GBA consoleizer uses a Spartan 6. And to me, it's like when I read things like that, and I read it so often, it's like, my God, I hope people really don't believe that, that, you know, at the end of the day, good coding and good engineering is usually always going to come out on top, and that um, a device's performance or capabilities or quality shouldn't be relegated just by the damn chip that's being used on there. And I don't know. It's something I've kind of wanted to talk about for a while with other makers to see if they, you know, I, I kind of get what, I, I kind of get what you're saying though. You're, you're being very polite. You're being, I mean, the spec sheets can have importance to some extent. I mean, the, I really only want to talk about my own products when making comparisons like this, but like when I'm marketed project selling, it has eight megabytes of additional RAM. My point of outlining that is, hey, that's eight megabytes. That's like more than we've ever had. You know, it's future proof in that sense. You know, the difference between an HDMI mod having, you know, a Spartan 6 versus a 7, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, we're all going to be using upscalers at some point. So harping on things being future-proof in that sense is kind of new. If you ask yeah, me... I agree. So, Dustin, uh, you happen to mention Python as the development language that you use. Um, would something like an Atmega work uh, for your application or not? Um, the... Python code is just like an intermediate. Um, at the end of the day, like um, the tool chain and everything's ultimately building, um, in our case, uh, HDL. Um, for Project Stellar, uh, an FPGA is required simply because the bus that we're tapping into on the original Xbox, um, one of the pins is missing and half the revisions, the L frame. And it creates a really complex, like, internal state that you have to keep track of. Um, I spent about, like, three or four weeks trying to bing it out on a uh, RP2040 using their um, PIOs. But at the end of the day, it's just a little too complex. Um so an FPGA just made sense there. Plus, going with Galwin, um, we got the uh, external SD RAM integrated into a chip, so one less item on the bomb. Ultimately, it just came out cheaper 
to do it that way. Plus, it leaves the door wide open for future mods and add-ons. Regarding um, the 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 Reddit posts talking about this FPGA is older and this is newer, um, one good example of maybe why an older one might maybe better is when industry and by industry I mean not retro and by industry I mean just general consumer electronics. Um, maybe industry switching towards oh we're going to use Arctic Seven, which is Xilinx. It's a Xilinx one. Xilinx AMD, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but choosing, intentionally choosing to use a Spartan 6, which I think that's almost 10 years old. It's not end of life. It's I think it's still got uh, three or four years left on it. Like like uh, Xilinx posted when the forecasted end of life date for it. The intention intended reason for that, so if you look at GC Loader, provided it was in stock, it's quite affordable. You know, it's uh, what we're is it, like $90, I think, shipped, something like that. And, you know, older FPGA like that, still fine, still does what it has to do, but it's affordable versus, oh, we're going to use an Arctic 7. Arctic 7, uh, pre COVID prices, pre shortage prices, was still radically more expensive than Spartan 6. I really think it boils down to costs, but just like you said, Boltar, just compare it based on this is old, this is new, and this has more logic cells. Um, kind of silly. I think it's like a simp. Okay, I've seen this kind of argument before, and you know what? It reminds me of the fucking console wars. Like, I and the thing is though, it's like people have this weird obsession with. This idea that the more you spend, the better you get. Like, I get the the phrase, you get what you pay for exists. But at the same time, less is also more. I mean, just because I say that I have a GameCube with, I don't know, a, Blue, a Pluto 2 HD uh, mod doesn't necessarily mean that it's worse than, you know, having a, G, uh, a, a GC Duel. I mean, granted, the GC Duel does have more features on it, but that's besides the point. If uh, I feel that people are putting too much value in how much something is worth rather than what you can get out of the device. If you ask me, I think it's more impressive when you have like an older chipset or a weaker chipset or whatever, and you can pull so much out of it from so little. Like with the uh, X station or the um, the um, the Fed or the Retro Five X. Well, That's amazing. Uh, amazing features based on what logic is available on the, the, the power plant for that. Like I never in my wildest dreams thought that uh, th- that thing would have the, the, re- the rich feature set that it does. So I, I just I don't know. I just think it's kind of weird that we we that people want to relegate uh, products and their capabilities and what they're able to achieve just based on a data sheet or a white paper. Now, data sheets and white papers certainly serve a utility. They give you an idea of what you're, what's capable and what's not, but I think it's a very poor marketing tactic or it's a very poor – it makes for a very poor argument when you're trying to, you know, make any sort – give any sort of compelling reason why something might not be as good as the other thing or vice versa. Like, I don't know. I just think that 
I think that we can all do better. Not saying that anyone here is guilty of that, but I think that like, I just feel like it's really important we start talking about like what FPGAs are and what the reality is and what the expectations should be for these systems and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Do you happen to know what's inside a RetroTink 5X? Oh my gosh. Um, Yes, I do, but I'm literally having a brain fart right now. The funny thing is, is Mike is literally right here. He could easily tell us, but he's choosing to be in listener mode. Yeah, and Mike, if you ever, if you wanted to hop in for whatever reason, um, just make a talk request. Just so you know. So, Mike, I think, I think if I'm right, and I could be wrong, but I think it is the lowest grade Cyclone Four. But yeah, if uh, I'd say that what I would find more interesting is if we see like people start utilizing lower power FPGAs and like instead of being like, oh, I got a uh, don't you lecture me. You spent only ten dollars on your FPGA. I spent two hundred. It's like instead of like, you know swinging around prices like as if we're doing a dick measuring contest we should like instead look at like you know the lower the lower end fpga see what we can get out of those like let like let's examine it more maybe there's something that we don't know about it because the data sheet doesn't have it documented or maybe uh we can pull off some programming tricks and you know get more out of it than what was initially expected like you know, it doesn't have to be like I spent all this money on this, but it, it, it's like when you compare people, uh, compare when people compare like uh, tools, for example, you can give a rookie like all uh, Hako equipment, but you but they could still like get absolutely schooled by a uh, by an experienced uh, handyman who just has, like, a rinky-dink $10 soldering iron. Yeah, I agree, because, you know, being in Canada and the exchange rate from U.S. dollar to Canadian dollar being probably the worst in 20 years, I, I understand that the cost of the FPGA is a big part of a lot of Pixel FX's uh, product. And when I post to... Uh, Facebook groups for retro uh, gamers with thousands of Canadians in there. And when I tell them how much the kits cost from Pixel FX, that turns away like 98% of the people just because of the cost after exchange rate, after shipping, after customs. So if these products can be made cheaper by using cheaper FPGAs, uh, it will open up the market that much more. I mean, really, I think the FPGA thing um, right now, as far as availability, it's pretty much a scalping contest unless you want to use, you know, Analogic or Gowan, which, again, not not the the industry is not as familiar with those. I mean, they're because, you know, they're newer versus something everyone is familiar with, like an Intel or a Xilinx one. 
hate to say it, but, you know, Chad Chopper got left behind. Uh, yeah, that is the game of tech. Um, what I was going to say to drive Voltaire's point home is um, the pricing of our products have, you know, changed a lot. But with Project Seller and Xbox HD, um, the Xbox HD part is only $60. Um, and I'll put money on it right now that the Xbox HD will be the only HDMI mod for the original Xbox within the next like five years that actually outputs the correct video signals. I can't believe it's $60. Yeah. Uh, project seller is 80. Um, project seller with I mean, that- Xbox HD is one forty. That's just a that's just a phenomenal value. That's just that's a, that's insane. And I don't have an affiliate link, so I'm not getting any money. From this, <laughs> okay, but listen, it's just well, it's just a crazy value. all of the important logic to the mod chip. I mean, the HDMI is video out. It doesn't really need much. <laughs> the f- few oh. you know, like creature comforts. Well, slightly on topic, Justin. Slightly off topic, you. Um, yeah. We were talking about something that we were going to do, and you were going to send um, an earlier PCB because the earlier PCB of the Xbox HD is unique because you have to wire something differently or something in order to integrate it in with uh, Stellar. Is that right? Do I remember this right, or am I remembering this wrong? And you want uh, we wanted to show this right, right, on. Right. So the original kits, you soldered a couple of wires directly to the motherboard. Uh, With the newer kits, there's just a little wire harness that you connect. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah, the original mod, like, tapped directly into, like, one of the system buses. With this, it goes through Project Stellar. So the new kits actually require Project Stellar, but... That's just to keep things simple. <laughs> it's also one of the reasons that we're selling like the upgrade kit. Like if you wanted Project Seller and you had the original mod, you can buy like a five dollar little adapter to upgrade. Um, when I just just <clears throat> curious, are you going to how's inventory looking? Are you do you have any units right now, or do you expect to? Have uh, some more supply here soon. Um, I don't know if you saw the update last week or might have been earlier this week. Uh, We had a little production hiccup because this is one of Make Megahertz first outsourced uh, fabricated boards. Uh, I've done outsourced fabricated boards for other companies, but for those, this is our first small hiccup there. Inventory going into Q1 and Q2 should be solid. Um, Wonderful. Switching to Galwin was probably one of the best decisions I made this year. Good. Well, I just want to go ahead and announce right now that the RetroTink 4K, Mike G has just given me permission to say this, it will be released on uh, uh, Christmas Day of 2022. Uh, and if you uh, order uh, on the pre-order page in a week, 
you will get a $10 coupon to KFC because he's a fan of Kentucky Fried <laughs> Chicken and he wants everyone to experience uh, a little bit of my home state. And uh, Mike, uh, I want to thank you for that personally. The Colonel would be proud. I don't know, because the Colonel kind of sold KFC, uh, the U.S. operation anyways. Uh, he owned the Canadian operation for many years afterwards. I wish Mike would join so we could talk about the direct integration with the Xbox HD. <laughs> I, I invited him. I think Mike just wants to listen. Yeah, so so Dustin, speaking of the Xbox yeah, he, HD... he's probably really busy right now, but he's like, mm, you know... I just want to say, noise. Mike is the sort that... Mike is... Uh, I know Mike. He's a good friend of mine, and he. I'm just going to say this. He likes to watch, and that's all I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> Dustin, uh, for Project Stellar, you mentioned that the older Xbox HD can be... Well, uh, uh, upgraded. We can't have a uh, retro gaming discussion without talking about uh, probably one of my favorite segments. What's on AliExpress? Hold on, so, hold on, hold on. Uh, what were you saying, Leon? Uh, I was wondering, Dustin, for those people that upgrade the Xbox HD, the older revision, like the one in my personal yep. Xbox. Uh, Is he trying to say your- something? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Okay. So I was wondering, for those that use the uh, $5 upgrade kit to upgrade the older Xbox HDs uh, to Project Stellar, uh, would that pretty much put it in line with the latest Xbox HD plus Project Stellar so that any future updates yep. will work across the board? Yep. So... What happened was, is we removed the microcontroller from the HD board, the HDMI board, and that's on Stellar now. So to keep everything simple, you know, code bases and things like that, when you do the upgrade, it pretty much flashes a firmware to the older revision HDMI boards that basically tells it, hey... If there's a project seller connected, just do whatever it says. <laughs> and the reason I decided to do that was instead of having like three different combinations of hardware to support, you know, original Xbox HD, HD, older revision with Stellar and HD, you know, plus with Stellar, we could like remove one of those. So. Yeah, it, it's exactly the same once you switch over. And we'll continue making updates for the people that don't upgrade to Project Stellar. Okay, They're- what was on <laughs> AliExpress? I'm very well, curious what you found. Well, first of all, I want to apologize to Leon. I literally could not hear you. I have my uh, AirPods on. But for some reason, you weren't coming through my uh, my pods, so that was kind of strange. Um, uh, so, what we have today, my uh, my fellow retro gaming nerds, 
is a new GBA HDMI kit, but not just any GBA HDMI kit. Oh no, this one reports that it can output 720p, but here's the kicker, the screen. The screen is a Nintendo DS Lite screen. What? I am not kidding. So apparently, instead of using IPS screens, they're just sourcing um, replacement uh, DS screens and using that to replace uh, to not only have like HDMI, uh, they have like an HDMI out board, which can reportedly can do uh, uh, 720p, which I don't know how that's going to be possible, but I'm going to get into that a little later. But it says here uh, that the new screens that they're using... Oh, sorry, not DS Lite, DSi. Um, they're using the upper screens of Nintendo DSi's now for the new LCD kits. Yeah, they've been doing that for a long time. Wait, it's actually a really good kit. I actually prefer it over the IPS screens because... the So the DSi screen, as far as I'm concerned, it has all of the benefits of the IPS in terms of, like, quality. Oh, no, no, let me take that back. It has slightly better uh, sharpness uh, than the, from the stock back, backlit screens, but what it really excels in is that it rapidly, in uh, the, the, the response time and the, the pixel refresh is much faster. So basically what you have is a slightly better-looking GBA SP without the ghosting. I really dig that, those screens uh, being put into uh, Game Boys, uh, Game Boy Advances. I really like it over the, I prefer it over the IPSs. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to say, yeah. that's, that's been around for a little bit. They're pretty awesome. Does, yeah, this is the first time I've ever heard of it, personally. Like, this is the first time I've uh, ever seen uh, them using DSi screens. Uh, let's also tackle the other half of that, the 720p output. Um, for those that don't know, the uh, the GBA can't output 720p if you're using integer scaling. Um, if I remember correctly, you can do 720 by 480 if it's a 3x uh, integer scale. But um, let me see here. GBA resolution... Yeah, the GBA resolution is 240 by 160. So if you do any sort of integer scaling, um, let's see, 160, 320, 480, uh, 6, 12, 18, 24. So that's uh, 540. Is this kit by chance the same kit that has like that? You have to cut a little hole and that's how you get the 720p and it's like a board you put in the Game Boy? Yeah, so uh, it's like a it's like a weird like uh, intercept board that connects between the LCD and the um, uh, the LCD and the um, screen itself. But what I want to know, uh, what I'm trying to think is, how is this achieving 720p? Because um, the only way that it would work is you're either light uh, doing. Uh, you would have to either force the image into a non-integer scale, or you would have to bump up the uh, line, multiply it to a resolution that can also be uh, 
scale uh four scale to seven twenty p without much of a cost in picture quality. I sent Mike a uh a previous HDMI mod for the Game Boy Advance, which did uh seven twenty by four eighty. And unfortunately he reported it does not do line three X uh interscaling. So what it does is it uh doubles uh, it does a uh, 2x scaling but then forces the rest of the picture all the way through and i was like oh that's kind of a waste so well i, I yeah, have a question was... concerning this um it's not so much about the resolution um but it's really about the gba hd does the gba hd open the open source game boy advance consoleizer which by the way i think is phenomenal but i've all i'm, I'm this was never really fully answered for me does that kit, does it use the, 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 the mic on it? I'm hearing myself. Who is that? Who is that? Okay. Does the, does it sync? Does it, is the vertical refresh like conformed or does it use a free running sync and does it just output vertical refresh that's natively coming out of the system without any sort of conformity. In other words, is it speedrunner safe or is it conformed to like a 60 hertz vertical scan? Does that make sense? Do you guys understand what I'm asking? I have to read the code to know that. I'm not sure. Yeah, no one's been able to give me an answer on that. Uh, and I, I don't know, if maybe I'm answering, asking it wrong or, or maybe if they just, they don't understand what I'm asking, but, you know, Hashtag I just, I'm source code. Yeah, hashtag, yeah, there you go. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but, um, uh, Zach, Zach, I would assume that it works very much like the GBA consoleizer in that it does not force 60 hertz. Um, well, the GBA consoleizer, it, it does force that. It does force that, uh, but there's an optional firmware that you can put on there that... Um, just it spits out video just as it's coming in, just as as it's coming out. But the reason that you know it it, it didn't originally ship with that is because not all displays are going to be compatible with it. It's like an OSSC, right? You get these vertical uh, you get these awkward, funky vertical refreshes that just might not be they're not compliant. So therefore, your TV or your video processor might not like it. I just wonder if the GBA HD has an option available to where you can run the sync line native like it's just it's not it's unconformed because it it does not have that if no it does not have that option um if if anything the gba hd that i have either doesn't matter if you're using the 480 720 or 1080 modes uh, none Mm -hmm. of them work with my samsung 1080p tv uh very much like the stock firmware on the GBA consoleizer. Okay, okay. So may, pro- most likely, then they're not shaping the sync data or the vertical refresh. They're not. They're not slightly underclocking or they're not slightly overclocking the Game Boy hardware so that it runs synchronous to a sixty hertz video line. Yeah, you most probably- likely. Yeah, most likely. Uh, I do have a uh, question about uh, the DSi. Um, do you guys happen to know if the DSi screens uh, 
are more consistent when it comes to quality. I bec- the reason I ask is uh, I've never seen uh, two DS lights uh, that have the same temperature in the output. They they're they're all over the place. Did Nintendo fix that with the DSi? Um, I've been messing with a lot of DSs lately. I freaking hate them, but, um, anyways, I, I'd say that they did fix it. Like it's, things are pretty consistent across the port board with DSIs. Um, I did do some, uh, do some, uh, quick research though on like why they would use a DSI screen. It turns out the DSI is like a perfect one-to-one, um, match to uh, the GBA's native resolution. It's a 240 by 160 screen. So, yeah, that would explain why they used it. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yeah, because the DS Lite, you know, they what they call white is very different between two consoles uh, with varying temperatures. Like, one is more yellow than the other. That might be due to the screen itself. Um, I've had a few DS lights go through my hands, and you are right. Like, sometimes the screens aren't necessarily the same hue. Like, I've seen some that are a little bit more on the yellow side. I've seen some that were a bit on the blue side. Um, And these are, like, good condition handhelds. Like, there's nothing, like, inherently wrong with them. If I had to guess... It's most likely like some screens may have aged worse than others. Like that's that's my best guess, though. Oh, this yeah, has been a problem since the beginning. I mean, I remember running into this problem with new units when the DS Lite just came out. I yeah. think that what it comes down to is just cheap manufacturing. Those DS Lights, God, they were so cheap to buy. Not saying cheap is bad, but I think that just Quality-wise, in general, the displays weren't very good to begin with because they were just um, – I, I, I just think that they were just so – I don't want to say poorly made, but I don't think there was a lot of consistency in their, their manufacturing. Um, unlike, say, something like a PSP where the screens – even though like the PSP 1000 and 2000 had some ghosting issues, those screens, as far as I'm concerned, were very uniform and very consistent – um, I've had Game Boy, I've had Game Boy Advance SPs here that uh, were p- totally stock, but had, like Leon said, radically different color temperatures. One SP would have a sort of a yellow push, and the other SP here would have more of a blue push for whites. Um, I just think that's just, you know, just cheap components. Probably. Did, did you did you ever like take a look at the the actual models or the the screens to see if maybe they're radically different screens almost or like different sort of manufacturing dates. I've never taken apart a, 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 a DS or a SB, so I'm not sure if the screens might, like, maybe just different dates on them or different, like, uh, parts that maybe they ran out of and threw it in, just really adding to the inconsistency, if that makes sense. That's possible. You know what? You're probably right. It's probably a matter of them just being uh, part of different batches. It's kind of like paint or wallpaper or something like that, you know? If it's, you know... Uh, part, different parts from different batches, even though they're supposed to be identical, one batch is going to be uniquely different a little bit. Um, it could be one of those situations, certainly. I, that's actually a good idea. I might try to dig those up and 
and look into that. I don't know if anyone would be interested in like making a database of, of you know, Game Boy Advance and, and, and DS screens to sort of like compare the discrepancies in quality. But I think that's interesting, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't help to make. I mean, it wouldn't be bad. You just have like maybe an a open source uh, Excel spreadsheet with a couple people that just throw it in there and just be like, hey, here's the uh, here's the screen data. But and that's kind of why I like the replacement screens that it's more consistent to a point for the people that you buy them from it's usually you know you'll get a, a screen that's i wouldn't say perfect but you know near perfect depending on where you get it from and that's what i like about those replacement screens but again it also depends on if those are any good at all as well i just don't like the ips screens people can get mad at me about that because they're really attached to them but there's just something that just feels very inauthentic about holding a Game Boy Advance with this IPS panel that is, you know, it's line, it's 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 integer scaling up the video. It just, it, to me, it doesn't even look like a Game Boy Advance game anymore. And that's probably yeah. because of, like, the pixel grid, you know, of the original screen. And that's another reason why I like the DS Lite screens that are now being dropped into Game Boys, because they maintain that same pixel grid and you know, you just have it's it's the same pixel grid, and it's the same visual aesthetic without the ghosting. Yeah, in all honesty, I, this might sound blasphemous, but I kind of actually prefer the. Everyone likes the was it the AGP screens. I kind of prefer the first ones. Not be, I know it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I kind of like the. I guess the softest and nostalgia. I guess it's kind of equivalent to saying I like playing on like a a low line count TV versus a sharp TV. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love a. Listen, the, the one of the best monitors or CRTs that I ever had was a Sanyo. No, no, no. Yes, it was either a Sanyo or a Toshiba. No, 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 no. It was a Daewoo 14-inch uh, television VCR, VHS combo. And I wish I still had it because it just had a very unique, um, bloomy, shadow mask, grilly output. And it certainly didn't look, it wasn't razor sharp, but it just had a really distinctive look that I liked. And people, man, people rag on like consumer grade CRTs far too much. Like you have to have a broadcast monitor to be taken seriously. It's like, dude, you have a 50 pound CRT in your house that that's, you know, 14 inches in size and you paid $400 for like, who the hell are you to, you know, to make fun of anyone's choices of, of display. But um, yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm with you all the way. I like, I like the consumer grade. Uh, I like the consumer grade displays for sure. Yeah. So speaking of um, screen replacement for handhelds, the biggest problem that I've ran into um, is all these modern replacements, uh, IPS, TFT. Has anyone noticed that the battery life has gone? significantly down and in some cases like the game boy color ips screen replacements uh the power requirement to turn them on is so high that you have to cycle the system a couple of times before you even have the system turn on it's something that i've been battling with a few consoles here uh with modern lipo uh, battery replacements to the point where the requirement required current is so high that it actually blows out the fuse. Well, Leon, I'm going to tell you. I'm, I'm going to just say you. I'm just going to tell you right now. 
I question and I am afraid of the majority of the modifications that I see power-wise. Whoops. I dropped my headset. Sorry. I'm, I'm really afraid of the majority of the power-related modifications that I see for those Game Boy handhelds because they're goddamn dangerous. And, for example, there's a, there's a backlight kit available, one of several for the Game Boy. There was a guy who was having trouble, and he bought it from a certain vendor. I really don't want to mention his name because I don't want to talk about it in, like, that sense. But there was a vendor in the U.K., <coughs> and he reaches out to the support, and the suggestion is the fuses kept popping. Support instructed this customer, their customer, to just short and bridge across the fuse with a piece of metal that the kit requires more current, it has a higher current demand, and you can just bypass the main fuse in the Game Boy. And that is the sort of advice that's coming out for the problems that you're talking about, and that scares the hell out of me. So I wish I had a good answer for you, but I don't like what some of these vendors are suggesting to their customers and uh, how to like mitigate or get around the current uh, demands, the current draw demands of these backlight screens. We should never be bridging fuses or circumventing safety uh, uh, protocols in, uh, or safety uh, measures in our um, systems. I think we all, we all, I hope we all can agree on that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, with, especially if you, I'm guessing with the Game Boy, uh, off the top of my head, I believe it's a lithium battery in there for the SPs. So, I mean, imagine just leave it there. All suddenly you're on vacation. That thing, uh, burst, like burst or something happens. There's got to be, you actually leave it on and the thing starts to fire. I mean, that's, uh, that's like literally dangerous. dangerous to your health, not only to your Game Boy, because I've seen MacBooks that do stuff like that. Imagine a Game Boy with no fuse safety. It's, it, it's crazy to me, but I don't know if there, I, I guess maybe, I don't really know a perfect solution for that, except maybe get a battery that, that supports it better, but I don't even know if that's a good solution for that. That might be something, because I'm not an exact electric engineer, but you'd probably be able to speak to that both there. Well, you know, I don't know too much about what these, I don't know too much about like the, the, the current demands and the load demands of these screens and how they're driven. And, you know, I know what power source is obviously being used, but there are a lot of, um, you know, the, the, so the problem that I'm talking about where the guy kept popping fuses and the support guy just infor- instructed him to, to bridge the fuse, to take the fuse out, and just uh, short across it uh, and leave it that way. This guy was also using a quote unquote power cleaner that's used to sort of clean up the supply and to make the to make um, the 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 whole um, power delivery cleaner and more efficient, and it was to be used in concert with one of those lipo battery packs. And it's like, you know, I think those are good answers. I just question how well these things are designed because if they're popping fuses and it's if it's like if we're sinking that kind of current and we're popping like safety measures off the board and we're bridging across them. Boy, this could be a serious problem. So I'm, I'm really kind of leery about recommending, recommending these uh, Game Boy um, power and screen mods just, just for that very reason. Just in good conscience, I don't think I can offer any sort of. Um, I don't think I can offer a recommendation for any of that stuff at the moment. Maybe I guess maybe if, if there's like an alternative, or maybe like a do an analog pocket thing if you really want like 
the highest. Well, score that's another reason. Well, that's another reason why I like the DSI. I'm sorry, the DS, um, the DSI screen replacements because it's effectively just an upgraded version of the Game Boy Advance's backlit screen with a few little tiny logic elements attached to get an interface to it. But ultimately, um, I feel like that is a gentle, easy upgrade that won't be so uh, insulting to the Game Boy's hardware, and it's not going to violate it clearly as much or clearly as these other uh, these other modifications are as their popping fuses. So um, I maybe, one, maybe I should set some time aside to maybe do a video on that or to, to sort of take a look into that. But when I see people make these, they just make these Game Boy Advance, or these just, in general, these Game Boy um, uh, video upgrade uh, videos on YouTube where they're just replacing screens and talking about how awesome it is, but they're not talking about, like, all of the red tape behind these mods and sort of the things that happen to the system. That really bothers me, and I feel like, man, I, I just think it's only going to be a matter of time before one of these portables literally pulls a Samsung and just catches fire and does something either hurt, hurts somebody or somebody loses a home or a vehicle or something. Imagine yeah. the headlines plane forced to land after a Game Boy explodes on plane. Yeah, I totally And, agree. and that's possible. I, I totally agree because I've seen these issues come up with especially Game Boy Color, Wonder Swan, and Neo Geo Pocket. I mean, even with the Wonder Swan, it runs off, I, I think, a single AA battery. Even if you put in a fresh, brand new battery into the unit, it already tells you that the battery power is about to run out. So, you know, there are solutions out there from Onyx that uh, replace the battery with something that gives you a lot more watts. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we're trying to upgrade the screen to something a lot more modern with minimal impact to the power requirements. And I don't think uh, we're there yet. It's kind of like yeah, adding, a, I mean, adding like a giant ho horsepower engine to a car and not, fix, and not changing the clutch out at all. It's just asking well, yeah, for trouble. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, I mean, you know, look, these systems, these systems were designed with very specific, they're portable, and they have very specific power budgets that they were designed to adhere to or to fall under. And the problem is that these modifications, they just grossly violate these power budgets. And nothing is being done. The mods are being created, but there aren't any good complementary mods being created that will satisfy the increased power demands so that everything runs properly and everything runs safely. Like, I'm sorry, I see these rechargeable battery packs being sold for the Game Boy Advance, and they fit into the battery cavity of the Game Boy Advance. But they're like these shitty-looking motherboards with a battery attached, and they're usually rape, uh, rape. They're wrapped in Kapton tape. I'm not putting a fucking wrapped-up Kapton tape battery into my Game Boy Advance. Like, you're nuts. Like, this is not a product that should be sold, as far as I'm concerned. Like, that is just not the way you uh, design a power product, and, that, and you certainly don't sell something like that. I really feel like it's just a matter of time before something bad happens. I could be a negative Nancy, but I just feel like it's not worth the risk. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't use, like, regular, like, rechargeable double A's at that, at that point. 
Oh, that seemed like the better option. Because it's cheaper. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. No, I mean, batteries are cheaper is what I mean. Oh, okay. I should also mention that, like, the DSi screen mods are actually cheaper than the IPS uh, mods. So, yeah, make of that what you will. Yeah, I think it's the best bet. I mean, if you, I mean, whatever you like is what you like. If you like IPS, that's great. I can see why people would like it. It's razor sharp, but I just think that the the aesthetic. If you're wanting to maintain the aesthetic of those screens, the DS Lite drop the drop in panel is good for that, and it's also good again because it's not so insulting to the hardware that probably nothing bad is ever going to happen. And guys, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to jump off here. I have to go take a bubble bath, and I go have to go. I have to go watch Murder She Wrote. So it's time for me to bounce. But I really appreciate you having me on. God bless. Take care. Later. See you. Take care. So, so I was actually was actually want to bring up a topic that I actually discussed with uh with another another YouTuber that brought up uh talking about arcade. So we watched a I've watched a video about this guy who I guess quote unquote upgraded a team and T machine. And added and switched it out for a uh, LCD screen instead of a CRT. So I guess he got a broken down machine, and fixed it, fixed it up, quote unquote. And everything was good besides the fact that uh, he basically, like, oh, I couldn't fix the CRT, and no, I did, so I just sold it to somebody else and threw an LCD in there. And it's like, I guess my thing is, is that I guess my comparison is like putting like a, a Honda Civic engine in like a Ferrari. And my thing is that, and I guess another person was arguing, oh. But they can do whatever they want. It's their machine. But it makes me wonder. It's like, they're not going to have it forever. It's going to be, you know, eventually somebody else's. So I guess my thoughts are, I guess, like, where, where do you guys stand on that? Like, do you feel like like they should, I'm going to say should be able to do that, but, like, should be able to do and call it an upgrade? Or would it be objectively a downgrade, per se? So, personally speaking, I say that, like, let them know ahead of time that you know there are other options other than crts um yes there are good lcd monitors that you can use but they are so few and far between and usually the good ones are pretty expensive just let them know that what their options are and if they are that dead set on using an lcd they can just do whatever they want because at the end of the day it's yes it it is exactly as it is it is their machine they can do whatever they want regardless of the fact uh, that it may not always be their machine the fact of the matter is that currently speaking it still is if the next owner wants to replace it with a crt they are more than willing to do so if they want to keep the lcd display on they are more than willing to do so as well uh, uh, as well um, personally, I would say that if you're going to use an LCD, at least use one that's not going to, um, introduce any sort of problems and is very low latency. Um, that's where I stand though. It's like, I feel that we shouldn't police people into going by our way. Just let them know that there are better alternatives, but if they are dead set on going their way just let them do it like at that point just don't uh, there's no point in like telling them what's the right way if they are set on what they want to do 
I guess. But I guess my thing is, if they're doing it to a big audience instead of, like, I get perpetuating, oh, the replacement is the LCD, do you think that's, you know, I, I guess giving off a bad thing was, like, giving, like, an audience telling them, oh, hey, this is the, what you got to do to make it work. You got to put an LCD in there and get rid of the CRT and perpetuate that. Like, it, I guess to me it seems a bit dangerous, but I'm in the middle about it because I agree with you. It's their CRT. They're a machine. They could if they, if they want to put a laggy LCT in there, but I guess they could. But I guess in the future, uh, I guess it's going to be harder to find these CRTs, if, especially if they just throw it away. I suppose. Well, well, the re- that's the reality of it. Sadly, like these CRTs are not, you know, they're they're on their way out. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a CRT just go vertical collapse, and like it's just done. I literally have two CRTs downstairs with vertical collapse right now. Yeah. So it's like the reality of the matter is CRTs are dying. They are not, uh, they're not built to last and they're not going to last for, I don't think even another 10 to 15 years. So the reality of the matter is that an LCD is going to be the viable way of doing it. I, however, there is a proper way of at least doing it. If you're going to use an LCD, at least uh, use some use a, a good driver board. Or heck, if you're going to use like a random LCD, why not use something that can bump it up to the LCD's native resolution? We have the GBS control. We have the OSSEs. You can just fe- uh, uh, grant it with some attenuation, mind you. Um, you can attenuate the the RGB output from the JAMA board with a super gun that's properly built, have it interfaced with the GBS control or OSSC, and then output it to the LCD. Because at that point, at the very least, you can minimize the amount of lag that may be present from using an LCD. Um, you may not be able to get rid of it entirely, but at least it won't be as bad as a direct connection. I kind of see where you go with it. So maybe like, maybe like it's like rewire the machine just to be around a super gun. So just have the control controls going to the the board, uh, the controls going to the panel and etc. I think that'd be be a good idea. And I think maybe something like if they really need to do it, like really really need to do it in a pinch, maybe like get like a RetroTank five X and just go all out on it. Like get the laggest free monitor you can get and get it in the square thing and uh, the square shape that it needs to be in for that monitor. But I just think that. You know that that if they need to do LCD, like that loving care needs to be put into it. I suppose, at least for the future people that are using it. But I mean, hey, for all we know, there might be something that uh, outcasts OLED and LED in the future. That might be like, oh, why don't we do this before? So yeah. when it comes to when it comes to LCD technology, the problem is that most arcade machines use a four to three ratio screen. And those really kind of ended at the 21 inch or less. And so if you have something that uses a 29 inch screen, which is very common to candy cabs, you can't really find an LCD that big. Um, And in my neck of the woods, anyways, something like a K7000 or a D9200 can easily be had for you know, $100, $200. So I'm of the opinion that if you need to change your screen because yours is worn out, 
there are options out there to still use a CRT as opposed to upgrading to an LCD. Yeah, and I can I can see that um, for something like an Astro, but something like a Net City or a or a Blast might be a little bit harder for those case those case sevens, I suppose. Well, I w- I wanted to um, butt in a little bit here and say that because I have worked on quite a few um, arcade CRT uh, refurbishments, and you know it's actually quite a bit different than consumer sets in that there's not a lot of different manufacturers. You know, most of the uh, American cabinets um, all used one supplier for their uh, chassis boards. The Japanese candy cabs used maybe three or four different suppliers. And there's a lot of parts available. So, yeah, you might get vertical collapse on a consumer set and be in trouble trying to get parts for that. But on an arcade chassis, parts are readily available and there's refurbishment kits that you can get from... uh, I'd have to look them up. There's like arcadepartsonline.com or something like that it has just about all the uh, CRT chassis parts that you'd want. So as long as the tube itself isn't fried, a lot of the time, usually it's just the chassis board needs to be gone over, you know, new caps and maybe some fresh, um, you know, the components for the vertical deflection and whatnot. And then usually they're good to go again for at least five, 10 more years. So that's that's something I would say before you throw out the CRT, encourage them to get the chassis board looked at. And there's even a place, um, PNL in Las Vegas, that you can just send your chassis board off to and they'll refurb it for you and then send it back. Actually, it's kind of funny that you say that because uh, I learned that like the whole RGB modding on consumer grade CRT isn't actually a new concept apparently like back then in like the 90s um uh, like 90s early 2000s that's something that arcade operators would sometimes do they'll just take a consumer grade set and use that in place of a monitor it's like kind of a pinch uh in a pinch kind of ordeal and the reason why i bring that up because i <laughs> i saw this cabinet that was for uh I saw this cabinet. I don't remember if it was for sale or if it was like uh, just on display. But I noticed how the the uh, frame was obviously made for a bigger monitor. What do I see? I see a tiny 13-inch CRT like centered where that monitor is supposed to be. So you have this big border with all these graphics and stuff, but you have this tiny little CRT like right in the center. Hey, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do if you're in a pinch and running a uh, running an arcade, or you have an arcade owner and you need to make money on that machine. Get that up. I mean, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get that 13. up as fast as possible. True, yeah. but it was just hilarious because you have you have all these graphics along the side, and you just have nothing but big empty black voidness. And you have this tiny little square in the center. Yeah, and and, and one of my where... oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so one of my side hobbies is collecting old televisions, and I have TVs from mostly the nineteen fifties and sixties, and they're still as strong as the day they came out. So I don't believe that you know we're gonna reach anytime soon a point where there's not going to be 
any replaceable monitors for these arcade machines from the 90s. If you look around, you're always going to find uh, a CRT tube that uh, can be easily repurposed in an arcade. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, all the CRTs are, are, I mean, just a lot of tube swapping can happen. I think the issue, though, is for some of the other tubes that are really niche specific, like a tri-sync or something. I know some people have been doing it with, like, the JVC, I think, D-series CRTs. Because I think someone said, like, oh, they use the same CRTs in arcade monitors anyways. Um, Or at least it's a similar tube. So I've seen like some people just gut those and replace the CRT monitors and arcade monitors with that. And they look pretty good. It's just, you know, there's one less quality consumer CRT in the market, but in place it fixed a cabinet. I mean, cabinet that has higher priority than consumer CRT. In my eyes, it has higher priority than consumer CRT. I mean, unless it's golden tea. A lot of the uh, American stand-up wooden cabinets used uh, Zenith and Magnavox tubes. And, um, you know, again, people go and look for specific model consumer Magnavox and Zenith sets because they can pull the tubes out of them and then swap it into their cabinet and get a burn-free screen. So, uh, yeah, at least, again, with the American Dynamo cabinets, they're... There's really not much in there that distinguishes them from a regular consumer set. Yeah, those are those also a fascinating uh, beast in itself. Kind of like the candy camps of America, almost. If, if anything, the arcade monitors used to use the lowest-grade CRT tubes that were manufactured. So a consumer-grade TV tends to be of higher quality than what was available in the arcade machine. You, actually, that kind of reminds me of this. So, I went to go check out a uh, like a little CRT storage area. Like I was picking up a free uh, Ninja Gaiden blank cabinet. So it's like an empty cabinet. And in the pictures, I saw they had like a couple of machines running in the background. I was like, oh, I want to go check those out as well. So when I went to take a look, even though the cabinets were off, when the cabinets were off, they looked like they were just fine. Like, you know, nothing, no noticeable damage or nothing like that. I go up to them and I see that they have some pretty considerable burn-in. One of them is a Neo Geo cabinet that has, for some reason, Dig Dug burnt onto it. Are you sure it was an actual Neo Geo Big Red or a swap? I, it, I didn't. I didn't see the thing power on. So okay, it more than likely is probably just a Neo Geo swap. That's pretty common, to be honest. <laughs> but it was just hilarious to me. And like, imagine playing King of Fighters, but when the screen goes black, all you just see is like uh, the uh, the guy from Dig Dug pumping a dragon. Yeah, no, that's pretty common. It's the scores on the top of the screens. Yeah, no, that. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is usually just repurposed and stuff of that nature so just it's just really funny seeing that but that's also i think that's also another another issue that comes up is the repurposing and re-swapping of the cabs which i get why they did it but a lot of people now i think i don't have a problem if it's back then i guess i understand but like 
now I still see people like ripping them out and making them multi cabs, and it's like, why, why, why you do well, this? There's there's a whole thing, whole thing on the Etsy to make an arcade thing. Just use that. Well, I actually brought this up before, but uh, there's a barcade uh, near where I live, and they had a contra cabinet. But if you looked closely at the sides, because the sides were black, so it was like a black cabinet, but they had the marquee of Contra and the screen was changed to orient vertically. But what I noticed, if you, if the light hits it just right, you can see uh, that uh, see an SNK logo underneath there. And if you look closer, you realize it's a Neo Geo cabinet that they uh, painted black vinyl paint over. Huh. I'm guessing they replaced the button. They, they, they removed the two buttons. I guess so, because um, because there was no evidence that it was a Neo Geo cabinet. Like, it looked standard. If I had to guess, they probably patched it up and then put, like, a like an overlay or something on the controller board so you wouldn't notice. Yeah, but, I mean, you could probably take it off and you'd probably see the four buttons on there. Maybe it wasn't even a Neo Geo to begin with. Or maybe it was, I, like, maybe it was dino cap sort of things. I just thought that was interesting, because it's like, I get Neo Geo cabinets are common, but I was, but I was like, it was kind of weird seeing a Neo Geo cabinet get turned into a Contra cabinet. Yeah, I know some of those cab cab conversions are kind of weird. Like I think I was watching a Retro Ralph video, and he, he I think he, no, no, it was a, I forgot which video it was, but they, it was like a, it was a, a big blue, and they turned into a golden T or something. Like, oh, that just breaks my heart. Yeah, I forgot exactly what machine it was, but it, it, it was originally something. But yeah, it's really common. Arcade owners will do anything to, I wouldn't say save a buck, but I mean, if they could save money and have already a cab there and it's just a simple conversion job, why not just do it? But yeah, that's that's the 90s for you. I mean, I even seen machines that like use like, like used like a Neo Geo AES or a Super Nintendo that's wired to be an arcade cab. It's It's bizarre some of the arcade hacks that they have. Like if you follow some of these groups, they sometimes even sell them. It's pretty hilarious and cool. Oh, every now and then you'll see a Neo Geo AES that has like a really hacked up JAMA board attached to it. And it's just missing the controller ports. And interestingly enough, sometimes they sell cheaper than a normal AES. So uh, yeah, if you want to want a rather affordable Neo Geo AES, I guess just buy one of those and just replace the controller ports. Yeah, no, I always think those are really cool, and it's kind of funny because back then it was considered a bargain, but now it's like the reverse. She's like, oh, I can make money if I do this instead of doing that. It's just funny how these things shift over time because the arcade owners want to do that to save money. I don't know, it's just, it's just funny to me at least. But yeah, I'm definitely, I definitely love that sort of stuff. It's always pretty funny. And then there's the double screen cabinets. Oh man, can the illusion of the double screens break if both of the monitors aren't tuned correctly? I saw an X-Men cabinet. Four-player cabinet. The left look... Uh, the, when you looked at the two monitors, it looked like you were trying to compare composite video to RGB. The left one was crystal clear, crisp, and the right one was Blurfest uh, 2022. You could probably tell which one got swapped. 
It's kind of like the it's kind of like the tires on a car where you have to you have to swap them out. You have to swap them out at the same time, or else you know which ones are not uh, properly aligned. But no, that's probably one of them died and they swapped it out or something. I actually made a joke with my friend. I'm like, hey. You want to see a perfect demonstration of the difference in quality between RGB and composite? So I take my character. I think I was playing Wolverine. like, RGB. Then I turn to the right. Composite. Turn back to the left. RGB. Composite. RGB. Composite. Do you see the difference? And, and he was like, no, I'm too drunk to notice. It's poor kids. But yeah, no, it's... Like I said, a lot, a lot of those CRTs, one of them probably died, so I think it's kind of funny at least. But yeah, I, yeah. Like I said, I, I guess my biggest thing with arcades is like the preservation of it because uh, nowadays a lot of people are like, you get like people con- turn, converting them into like emulator machines or emulator cabs, and it's like, oh, okay. I guess I don't want to play Big Blue after all. I guess I'm playing this Pandora's box with a thousand games that are broken. And it, it just kind of in a way, a sadness. In a way that we 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 got to that point, and I think, like me and a couple other YouTubers, kind of, and that's sort of why we're passionate about the CRTs. It's almost like a a preservation, like a, a restoration of what it used to be, and what it, it it should be. Like with CRTs, like it's it's like getting a like restoring an old classic car, but you put like a a like a like a, a two JZ in it or something, or JZ swap it. It's just like I mean, I guess you're close, but it's not what it's supposed to be crt preservation that has a very large learning curve i've discovered very large and it's very difficult to keep them up and running especially in cabs man because those crts and cabs have a lot of hours in them yeah no they they definitely do and especially if it's an american cab it definitely has got those hours squeezed out of them at least with the uh Arcade cabs, the chassis board is easy to get to. The chassis is a much simpler than a consumer CRT because there's you don't have a tuner to worry about. You don't have to worry about input switching. There's no audio. You know, um, it's it's at least the circuitry is very straightforward to troubleshoot on them. And as I mentioned before, the parts are more available. But as far as um, cabinets and preservation go, I guess that's all I was going to say. Um, that's kind of where the arcade one-ups are a blessing in disguise because it gives all these people that want an easy multi-cabinet, an easy platform to uh, work with. Just uh, buy an arcade one-up, swap out the board that's built come, that's with it for, you know, arcade or a Raspberry Pi with a adapter board and you're good to go. But, you know, maybe 20 years yeah. from now, everybody will be wistful about the arcade one-ups they grew up with and are, will pay big money on the secondary market for them. Yeah, it's definitely going to be the new collector's item and like, oh, sealed, unused, arcade, one upgraded. And it's just really funny. But like, even even then, though, like, I think there's stuff like the Etsy, like kits where you can just like get it and paint it yourself and just like put a marquee on it and stuff and put a board, get it, get a, get a LCD. And there you go. So you have different levels of it nowadays. Like, And I think that probably would cost like maybe less than one of those NBC ones, like probably like 600 if you're really unlucky but yeah i should also say this though i've only ever worked on an arcade cabinet like maybe once or twice i will never forget the first time i ever worked on an arcade cabinet and that was a uh a cps2 cabinet actually it wasn't a big blue 
So I put my hand down for just a moment to just so that way I could take a look at the the uh, main board. I end up resting my hand on the transformer. Yeah, don't do that. That kind of kills the person. <laughs> well, it didn't kill me. It just basically woke me up. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it turns out like from uh, a lot of the times for the cabinets, the transformer is just kind of sitting there, you know, not unprotected. You you like and, and for, open for anyone to just grasp very gently. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the American cabs are definitely like that. I know in the in the cat and the in the candy cabs, it's not as bad. But like I don't know, maybe 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 I'm just biased. But at least in my net city, it was kind of hard to shock myself. I guess. Well, when I looked down, I was like, "Are you serious? Like that is a like." Like who who designed this? Like this this feels like a safe. It, it is a safety hazard. Like uh, if I held that thing for even one second more, I'd probably be need to rush to the hospital. Yeah, well, I mean the the kids weren't meant for people to go and uh, open them up. They're for technicians and electricians to work on. I think that was the thing in mind. So if they're opening it up, they don't really need to put the security security options because like regular Joe schmoes like me and you aren't supposed to be in there in the first place. Theoretically, yeah, American well, cabs too. Like they're they're just built cheaper. They're made out of thick plywood, and they just crank them out on an assembly line. They're held together not even with good wood screws, but just big wood staples that they can bang out with a staple gun. And so, yeah, they just throw the uh, cabinet together, bolt every bolt in your transformer and components to the wooden walls. You know, the wood acts as a ground, so you don't have to worry about doing anything fancy and you know, slap the cover on it and move on to the next one, you know, whereas the Japanese candy cabs are really built more like a real appliance, you know, like a refrigerator or a range or something where it's a metal enclosure and it's, you know, it's a higher quality product built to a higher standard. And so, yeah, they do a much better job with, you know, grounds and isolating things and making it less of a fire hazard. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. And I, th- and I think it's mostly because like they're, they're expecting, the arcade owners to swap the boards out. Like they're expecting them to open it up and swap things in and get coin slots out compared to an American where it's like, here's your arcade one game. Here you go. Bye. Like it's, it's meant for one game only or like one board. So like you'd see something like a Neo Geo, you open up once one area to put the games in and the, in the back areas for the, you know, the transformers and stuff. And I guess sort of the same way with the, with the candy cabs with like, yep, this is the section with the arcade games in the coin slot. Take them out. Bye. Do not open the back unless you're a technician. And it even says so on the side in Japanese. The dumbass don't open it up, please, unless you know what you're doing. I've actually been zapped a couple of times. And in both cases, it wasn't an arcade machine. It was actually a Sega Saturn and a PlayStation 1. So this is not an arcade problem only. Uh, Consoles have the same issue. And you have to be careful. Oh, I've, I've been zapped by several times on the PS One. I've never been zapped by PS One. I've been zapped by a Saturn now. Really? I've I've been in the Saturn so many times I can't even count. I've never get zapped get got zapped once. I'm guessing it's probably because I didn't touch anything in that power supply area. It, that's what I t- I touched the what was it the AC input of the power supply, and honestly, and and it should never have happened. Obviously, it should never have happened, but. It was really complacency on my part. 
In my case, it was just a lapse in concentration. Yeah, same. I've placed my hand on top of an Xbox power supply before. <laughs> One time I thought I died because everything just went black when the breaker flipped. Oof, yeah, that's that's the part where you might want to go to like the urgent care and get checked real quick. No, no instead, of dying, Dustin, uh, instead of dying, Dustin instead got superpowers. He has the <laughs> yeah. ability to now make a stellar mod chip. <laughs> But god, god damn, yeah, you got to be careful with these these things. Like I, I do, I should. I know a lot of people are like, oh, you're gonna get shocked in these things. You just gotta do this. And like, I remember I get roasted about telling people to be careful when you open stuff because it could kill you. So oh, just don't be dumb and discharge. Like, I mean, some people don't realize not to do that, or you can't really easily discharge things, or like stuff you're not expecting get shocked on. Like it, like I, I don't, I never really expect to get shocked on the console like that's not something that goes through my mind it's like oh it's kitty things well all it takes is just a a small lapse in concentration like you can be like one of the most diligent and secure people around there but all it would take is just for your concentration to slip just for a little bit for something to go wrong like in my case with like the ps1 I've gotten shocked by a Saturn. Oh, the Saturn was stupid. So, um, the VA zero, and I think it applies to the VA one as well. That's for the some one reason, I got the, zapped on. Yeah, the the power supply on those are mounted to the top shell. So, when I opened it and out to take a look, I didn't realize that. So I gripped uh, onto the AC input. <laughs> And I was like, and when I, when I quickly fell in shock, I let go. I'm like, what the fuck? And I look and I was like, why is the power supply mounted on the top shell? Like, it, it's usually on the bottom. And it confused me for a moment because I was like, I've worked on Saturns before. And I've had Saturns that had the power supply on the bottom. So why was this one mounted on the top? It turns out it was a revision thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, the thing is that a lot of people like saying, "Oh, Model One and Model Two Saturns," and like with like my group, we always like like say, "No, that's not the case at all. You cannot determine a Saturn's revision with round buttons or an oval button." Like that's kind of why we perpetuate. There's no such thing as a Model One and Model Two. It's the oval button, round button Saturns, and about twenty-five to thirty revisions in between that we're still even discovering. Like I've not seen one that has a power supply amounts to the top of it yet but again there's like 30 or so revisions it's ridiculous and that's sort of why i think and that's why i don't like it as well because a lot of people ask oh i want to get a radar phoebe or a a early generation fenrir or how i know what's a model one and model two and it's like you know it's not how it works it's like oh oval button because there's oval buttons that are va1s and there's round buttons that are va1 or va zeros or whatever reverses i can't remember there's so many revisions but the point is there's stuff with there's things that have like uh, 20 pins and 21 pins that are oval and round so it's not a one button fit all so i kind of so, please don't ever use model one and model two describe saturns it's round button oval button and about 30 revisions to begin with well unfortunately that's what catches on and that's why we have two chip even though technically two chip SNES is our three chip, but I digress. Anyways, um, yeah, no, that's why we sort of pushed that with Saturn, Sega Saturn Trail, is that we kind of push that, and hopefully people 
we'll catch on that it's not a catch-all thing for mile one and mile two. And even the controllers were like, just call it Japanese-style pad, America-style pad. So um, it's actually pretty easy to tell if your Saturn is going to be compatible with like an early Fenrir. You know how? Because oval button Saturns are always 20 pin. The it's the circle button. Mm. Uh, it's only the circle button Saturns that it's hit or miss. And it's really dependent on how early of a circle button you got. I disagree 100% with you. Yeah, I'm with you on that. There's no because there's so, certain situations where people would swap swap in different ways and there are circumstances where it's either or. If you get the VASG motherboard, that is a 21-pin Saturn board inside of a Model 1 shell. That's the one that, just for reference, that is the Saturn motherboard that has epoxy on it. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's sort of why we sort of push that, because the, that there's weird cases with that, and there's like 30 between and, and revisions that have that, so... There's no the only way you can ever know is to open it up and look and make sure because like there's no there I mean it's rare that I mean that might be might be like it's more the rule than the the, the exception but the one exception imagine you buy a Fenrir get it it's like oh I have the rare one it's like oh I guess this is useless to me now it's funny because for Saturn ODEs I you know when Dune on was had the monopoly on it for five years. Uh, you know, before My options. Yeah. And, but uh, real talk, um, Dune on Saturn ODEs are still rock solid. They've stood the test of time, 100% compatibility. Anyway, uh, yeah, for the longest time when Dune on was selling his Saturn cards, um, what the game was, you know, oh, what kind of Saturn do I have? No, the game was, no, get the ODE, then get a Saturn for it. Yeah, because I mean, you're gonna. It's gonna be hard to get the ODE and then Saturn. But I'm gonna plus one that the Dunon ones. Those ones are 100% compatibility. It has a weird ass format using the, the the CCD image subs, but like, there's plenty of places you can find it. Like, oh, I mean, I mean, actually, legit burn your games with it. Uh, totally not go to archive.com or look up Saturn, Saturn archive uh, CCD image sub and do that. Totally not. The- so the reason he used clone seed, there's a few reasons he used it. One is that he hates the redump format. He has his reasons, and I partially agree. But the other reason he uses clone CD format, it's much easier in terms of because you know he's programming a microcontroller the size of your thumbnail. It's easier for the microcontroller. So, so when, when when you have a CD-ROM emulator, one thing you do have to do is you have to tell the computer, as in from the CD drive to the computer, and in this case, you know, the Saturn CD controller that's on the main board, you have to tell it, and this this is all abstractions, of course, that I'm speaking of, you have to tell it where on the CD surface it is seeking. And the subchannel file is what tells the Saturn where it is physically lo- looking on the CD so when you have clone CD format, it is much easier for the microcontroller in this case to just shoot that data to it than to build some sort of algorithm where it uses Ben Q 
and then uses SRAM that he doesn't have because <laughs> he, he, he chose, you know, he, he went for cheap microcontrol. That's the point, you know. He went, he went for the cheap route, which makes sense. Um, he'd have to use more resources that way. Yeah, no, and it's fascinating because, like, like I, I know when because we did a bunch of homebrew projects, and a lot of it uses it was meant around ODEs. And I know when when I used a Rayo with it, it's like, oh, I'm having no issues. But when another host of mine used like uh, the other people uses modes or something, they had so many issues trying to get it to run because it goes outside of that range of the disc, which I thought was pretty funny. So it, it I, I gotta give props to Dunon. So are you going to say, Steve? I always hated making the menu for that. I wish it was simple, right? Like the Fenrir, it's just easy to put your ISOs on there, call it a day, or, or not ISOs, bins. But that was that, that always sucked to me, ha- having to do the menu and having to use the program just to put your um, menu on there. That, that was like a deal breaker for me. So I always stayed away from that guy. And the guy yeah. was huge. Yeah, it, it's, that's the thing is that I love the Duna. Like his product is great, but his interface and the fact that it only used CCD image sub, I think, and not to mention the availability, which is the which is a whole thing. It's a whole other discussion. Yeah, that was his. I mean, it wasn't. Well, I've talked to him privately. I still email him every couple weeks, or like I emailed him last week about something. But he he told me his intention behind it, and it. Okay, so you know, back in the day, like way before really the YouTubers started to like shill all these video processors and the ODEs, you know, cause you know, when he had these, when he started making these cards, it was like, we were still on forums. Everything was on forums. Still, there were no discord servers. So it wasn't as widespread. So what hit the way his cards work is he orders parts, he orders empty boards and he pays a few people to hand assemble the cards because it gets money back into his home country in Poland versus having to pay a China fab to assemble cards, which will not, which will not put money into his home country's economy. And then he, so in summary, his cards are hand assembled. I don't know if you guys knew that he has, I knew that that's a big, and, and I, I definitely respect that reason. It just kind of like, I know again, availability, his, his, well, his view was, he didn't want to flood the market. Well, I mean, now the market's flooded. I mean, there's there's no yeah. turning back. But yeah, and at the time, he just didn't want to flood everything. That's 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 all it was. Yeah, and, that, and that's definitely respectable. And I'm kind of happy now that we have all these options for certain ODEs. Like, we don't have to be like, oh, you have to stay up like at three in the morning and go on pulling time to get the drop before it sells out immediately. Yeah. It's like controlling that market and being the guy that you have to basically suck up to to get the, the ODEs. And then eventually it, it dried out and there was other competitors. And I don't know. Product yeah. was all right. The guy was terrible. I mean, he still sells them. Like, I mean, he's been kind of burned out lately. But like, yeah, yeah. Even with options, he still sells them. Like point. he still he still like as of last like last year I think I I bought a Raya to put in a Saturn and resell and I mean order windows were open for twenty five minutes like he still was I, I think he makes one to two hundred cards at a time he still yeah. sold all of his cards I mean like so I mean there's still people that will buy it is my point even with options 
true yeah and and i mean i mean i can't deny that it's the most reliable like it it works for everything i threw at it the only like the only caveat caveat is really the really the, the user format. interface but if you're if you're using a mister or you're used to doing all this homebrew stuff it's it's not that big of a deal but it is definitely frustrating when you have to convert a bin queue to cc image sub or vice versa it it definitely i definitely get that and yeah, the menu system kind of sucks in a way, but yeah, if you want reliability and you know all the games are going to work 100%, no issues, definitely it's really good. But for the vast majority, I think something like a Satiator or a Fenrir remote will get the job done. Oh, yeah, I should also mention if you have a VA0 or VA1 Saturn, um, recap it, like, please... Because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten like broken Saturns from Japan. It's like no video or no audio, and the caps are literally dry. Like they, when you remove, like typically when you remove a, ca- a capacitor, like they don't, they're not like super heavy, but like they have a little bit of weight on them. I swear they feel like there's nothing even in them anymore. Like a lot of those. Uh, a lot of the Saturn capacitors for like early Saturns seem to just dry out. You're not you're not wrong. When you do this enough, you're 100 percent correct. When you do this enough, you could feel the difference between one that has that electrolytic fluid and salt in it, and the others that have it dried. You're not wrong. Um, in my experience, I think I've touched between 30 and 50 Saturns total. The VA0, 0.5. Actually, you know what? I've never touched a VA0. I've, it's mostly 0.5s are the most Model 1s that I've touched. And I'd say about 30% of them had one leaking capacitor in the power supply. And just for reference, that's the one with the power supply in the lid. Yeah, it's easy to test when you shot. Easy to find out when you shot yourself with it. No, I'm just joking. But, uh, but yeah, no, actually, you did recap my my white Saturn. I can't remember what model it was, but I've noticed that a lot of those, I guess the one, the white Saturns or some of the Japanese ones have a lot of jail bar issues. I know you, have, you. you had a VA8, I think, is what you had. I can't believe you remember that. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> I think VA8 was one of the more common boards for uh, the white Saturns in particular. Yes, it was. Um, well, I think it was. Yeah, but no, you did a really good job on that. I really appreciate you doing that. And it's been a whole lot like a champ. It's still stream with it. But yeah, I just noticed that a lot of those VA8s have a lot of jail bar issues. I don't know, maybe if any of you guys have noticed that as well, or you see if you noticed that. You know who'd really know is like Mike. Well, he, Mike Chi's not in the chat anymore, but like. Rip. I, re- I remember in the earlier times of the 5X, he was mentioning that. Like Saturn is very noisy, jail bar like a motherfucker. Like he was, I remember him mentioning that on Twitter. Like Saturn was a very noisy console, and I do wonder if there is a particular model that, you know, provided it's recapped. I, I know what model he has. One. Which one? He has a VA zero with a Fenrir in it. How do I know that? I was the one that gave it to him. Oh, so so I guess VA zero is poopy. Yeah. So it's fully re- it was fully recapped. Power supply was recapped. 
Um, I think I did region mod it, which was kind of redundant. But before then, uh, but originally it was just a stock Saturn that was still using the disk drive. So that's why it still had the region free BIOS. Um, but um, I later upgraded it with the Fenrir. I gave it to Mike so that he could further development with the RetroTing 5X. Um, but yeah, like VA0 is it, it, it was a basically a noise fest. I, I'm currently rocking a VA1 uh, Saturn, and it's been nothing but fantastic. Um, it, which, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because it's like, actually, no, wait. I was about to say, like, there's only, like, a one diff, uh, one revision difference, but I was like, oh, wait a minute, there's a 0. 0.5 as well. Um, yeah, there's a guy that, that's actually working that that uh, is part of Shiro named Peter Malik. And he's going through right now and trying to collect all the revisions for each of the Saturns. And I don't know what his status is. I haven't talked to him yet about it, but he has like probably 40 or 50 Saturns. And I kind of want to reach out to him and see maybe if we can get something going where we have somebody go through or he sends it one by one to somebody that can analyze the video. And we find out which revision is the cleanest after, after like, or just the cleanest possible unre- unrevised and uncapped. And then just like find that basement. But then also you also have the the re- you'd pro- actually never mind. Let me take that back. You'd probably the best case scenario is you'd probably have to go through each one, recap it, and then test out the video output and see which revision possibly has the best video output of it, and then you know go with that. But then again, that's going to be a ton and ton of work. Yeah, there's, there's, as we all know, the Sega consoles very specifically had a had a lot of. Bodges and revisions, just slightly. Okay, look at the Genesis. Look, look how much effort we had to go through just to get the audio fixed with triple. We don't talk about the Genesis here, CEO. I'm just like I'm just saying. And then drink, like Sega finally got it right with the Dreamcast. Yeah, we're not much. I think like I think you might see one or two bodge one zero, but otherwise. Dreamcast, they got it right. Saturn, I don't know why, but for Saturn, that has a very, has a lot of like PCB noise. And if if someone was like really, really, really smart, and that this will probably never happen. This is just like wishes at this point. Um, someone trying to make like a universal Saturn board that has like professional EDA knowledge and like works it so there's no crosstalk and stuff like that. I think at this dream. point in time. The best plan of action would be to just build a Saturn RGB bypass, like just so that way you can grab the signals from as close to the source as possible, you know, buffer it, attenuate it, you know, all that jazz, you know, bypass the encoder entirely, the encoder circuit entirely, and just, you know, feed that to the 10 pin DIN. Like, that's going to be the best way to get the cleanest image out of any Saturn at that's at this point. Yeah, I think that's, you're right. I, Dude, I, that's probably the best bet, but I think in terms of video stuff, the Saturn is kind of like in last place with everything. Like, both, pretty much every single, every single fifth gen has an RGB or HDMI bypass or HDMI mod to it. Like, the PlayStation N64, like, hell, I even think the 3DO has something of that nature. 
but the the Saturn is just like nobody is doing anything video wise for it, and it's too intimidating. Yeah, it, well, it's depressing because it's like it's like it's like as as the Saturn guys, I think I'd love to have some of that stuff and test it out, but it's like there's no one making it. I mean, our homebrew is amazing. Like we have so many homebrew devs that do games for it, but there's like no hardware stuff. Pretty much, it's pretty much like maybe one guy like Izzy Patrick doing some. Uh, like Saturn 3D controllers and maybe and maybe some like uh some ODE stuff but like that's pretty much it sadly so the thing is though the reason why there was even much of an interest in the Saturn for a while is was mainly to defeat its uh CD security like I'm not going to sugarcoat it people were just trying to figure out how to defeat the uh the CD security thoroughly I mean, I mean it's um, been defeated thoroughly since the 90s dude Okay. Yeah. Well. I mean, they really just wanted free games. Let's let's be real. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but I know the, there's there's a misconception though that it's that it was just defeated. I mean, it's already was defeated by the Phantom chip or the, the Phantom mod chip. I mean, more like rooms. um, I mean more like okay. How do I explain this? Um, do you mean like a play place a, solution? Yeah. Basically. Um. Like, I feel like the reason why there was a lot more attention with the Saturn for a brief moment of time, and I quite literally mean brief, it was only a couple years, which, yes, I know a couple years is a while, but it's more of a while if you're talking, like, personally speaking. But in terms of, like, you know, tech focus, that's not very long. Um, I mean, we've been in Shiro for, like, like since 2017, and just then is the, when everything started blowing up. Yeah, so the thing is, though, what reinvigorated interest in the Saturn was Dr. Abrasive's discovery on how you can access the uh, Saturn's hardware through the uh, through the uh, yeah the VCD slot and then that kind of uh, blew the lid on the whole operation so that's when you started seeing like Rhea, Phoebe Um, you started seeing um you know the Fenrir and things no, like no, that. No, I, no, 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 no. The the Rhea Phoebe and stuff became way before that. Oh, did it? Yeah. yeah. Dunon Dunon used a totally different approach. Like everything. So GDMU took almost six years, and then everything he learned from that, he's like, "Oh wait, I can apply this to other consoles." And let me look at the Saturn, the pseudo Saturn as well, which was doing it probably a little bit early. I be, I think that came before that as well. And that was just like a plug-and-play cartridge. You put it in there, and you can burn CDs perfectly. Yeah. Um, another thing of note is that around that time, there was also like a thing where it was like the um, the not the yeah the Saturn emulation, like just out of the blue, random, just like hit a fever pitch in terms of updating it. Like it was a, uh, it went from you know uh, you know being passable to actually being like nearly fully functional like it there was a point in time where there was so much attention being put on the saturn that it's like we were seeing nothing but improvements after improvements after improvements yeah no, that's another misconception is everyone thinks oh saturn's hard to emulate like i even heard it on like the cu podcast and it's like that's not true at all you can play games in 4k up up rendered now yeah it like an used to dude. be hard to emulate yeah no a lot it's kind of funny that the misconception that's sort of why i try to we try to push it with shiro is that it's not like these misconceptions like it's not 
hard to emulate. Like you have people like like even the Saturn Junkyard, like Nuno, that's pushing stuff that's showing 4K gaming on Saturn because he's the big emulation guy for Saturn. So if you guys want that info, definitely go to Saturn Junkyard for that. Yeah, there's been like huge strides in terms of like improving emulation. Like the Saturn got a huge boost. The PS3 emulation got a huge boost. I think there was some even some improvement, critical improvements made to PS1 emulation. Um, PS2 got a boost. You is, know, is there PS3 was just like a... viable now, or is it still kind of like not viable still? PS3 is pretty good, but you need like some really strong hardware to make it work. Okay, because I, I haven't been paying attention, but I remember. I think the last update I saw is that they got, like, a menu to pop up, play on a game or something, or they got, like, a demo, and that was, like, it. So I didn't know what, what strides they've made since then. Um, it, it's mainly, like, uh, you know, just improving performance. You know, instead of, like, the game stuttering every five frames, it runs much more smoother. But you might still get, like, some occasional graphical bugs that won't impede the game, just, you know... You may notice like a little hitch every now and then, like a, the corner of the screen or something. Yeah, because honestly, I kind of think that that should be pushed a little bit more because it's really the only platform that you can still that you can only play MGS4 on. Like, there's no other platform you can play that on and get the story unless you. Well, I guess you could watch it on YouTube and you get the same thing, same the 12 hour cutscene. But I, I guess the point is, is that if you really want to like be a complete completionist with a with the MGS4 story, you need to play it on. A PS3, which is kind of funny because like I like how MGS5 came out on on the Xbox 360, but they couldn't get MGS4 on it. I just think that's I, I think it's funny to me for some reason. And Konami wasn't really very. Uh, I don't think Konami would have been able to figure out how to, you know, backport um, Metal Gear Solid 4 into the Xbox 360. I mean, just. A lot of their late Endeavor games were kind of iffy, if you will, in terms of performance. Um, like, for example, uh, was it them that did the Silent Hill? No, wait, they contracted that one. Um, if I had to guess, it was either because of Kojima, because, well, Kojima is like very specific on... Uh, on like what consoles you can make uh he wants to make his games on um uh, depends i mean he i mean he ported like all of his games to, like 25 consoles like like mg like a uh, police nothing snatcher on three different generations on like four different platforms almost even when like and like even with like mg even with like the envious like story they actually put that on the 360 well, all of them set four, of course. Yeah, fair enough. I, I just think uh, it's really funny that you can play the entirety of Metal Gear Solid, Metal Gear Solid franchise on a PS on a 360. Like even five, you can play, but you can't play four. four on anything but a PS3. That to me, that's just so funny, and it's kind of sad. But uh, well, given what you just said, if that's the case, then it's most likely that. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 was just left to be forgotten. Yeah, it wasn't the best Metal Gear Solid game, to be honest. If I remember correctly, it was mostly a movie rather than an actual interactive game. Yeah, and that's sort of why I said you could probably just watch it on YouTube and get the same gist of it. Uh, there's I still think... some fun boss battles, like the sniper, 
the sniper wolf one was kind of funny. Was kind of fun to play. I think even like the ending was like over an hour long. Yeah, it was pretty much a movie for that last one. But like I said, it's, it's important to wrap up the storyline. But the storyline gets so convoluted at that point. It's like uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The story once it hit MGS two, it just got crazy. Like MGS two and four stories, just like insane. It's just like it gets crazy. But I mean, everything else before that's fine. Like, like everything up to like MGS one makes sense and is perfect. But once you get once you get two and four, because technically two is a sequel to or four is a sequel to two. Like a I guess a long standing sequel. It's like it just gets too crazy. Like you get the Patriots and stuff, and it's like, oh my god, I just can't, I can't handle it. I mean, in Metal Gear Solid Two, there's a point in the game where you're literally stripped down to nothing, uh, to literally nothing, and you're cartwheeling while holding your junk. Yeah, no, that that, that happens. But yeah, no, I guess all I'm saying is that. I, I, what was the point I was making? Oh yeah, with the PlayStation emulation. Yeah, it just, I think the PS3 emulation just needs to get to get to the point where we can, like, I mean, even just the the only goal is to get MGS4 playing. I know that's kind of greedy and selfish to say, but like, I think, I think just get MGS4 to play perfectly. I'm perfectly fine with that. I just, I just need like an alter, alternate, some alternate or sorry, alternate method to play MGS4 that's not buying a whole ass PS3 and playing it on it. I think Metal Gear Solid 4 was made playable recently on a PS3 emulation. But like I said, you need some pretty powerful hardware to run it. Um, Define powerful, though. Like, we talking, let's like just say, are we talking like the 3090 level or something? I think... It's been a while since I've... Uh, it's been a, been a hot minute since I looked into it, but... Uh, Definitely if someone I'm... message me on t- on Twitter if that's the case. I I don't know on top of the top of my head. I'll probably have to look it up. Um, but if uh, from what I remember is like the the kind of hardware you would need to uh to run PS3 emulation smoothly would basically be about the same as like trying to do 8K gaming on a P uh, on a PC. Oh, okay, yeah, no, that's definitely. That's almost like a, that's actually thirty ninety forty forty ninety levels of need because even the thirty ninety I think uh, I think struggles with eight K gaming on a PC. And well, depending on the game, I mean, you probably get a solid thirty probably not three ninety, but if you want sixty eight K, that's probably not happening. Uh, now, keep, uh, I should keep in uh, I should note though is like. Like there, uh, there, it is possible that they might have optimized the emulator better because typically, like the first step, uh, from what I've noticed with emulation, the first step is to like get compatibility up, and then once they get compatibility up to a point uh, where it feels satisfactory, that's when they start optimizing it to you know run on lower end hardware. Yeah, I imagine I imagine eventually we'll get to level PS3. It's just it's just all like. Levels of complexity increases that time frame. Like even with the the Saturn Mister Core, I mean, I know the PS One was just a couple revisions and it got pretty good. But this the Saturn one is like it's a weekly thing that just keeps that easy to keep work to be working on. 
I'm surprised that uh, the guy could even continue work on the uh, the Saturn core, given his situation. Yeah, he's taking a break because I think there's been some stuff around Zara in Ukraine, but like, yeah, he's been putting out updates pretty much weekly on it. But, uh, oh yeah, that's another thing I should mention. Why we're not seeing video mods for the Saturn. The Saturn core on Mister. Yeah, no, let's, I, honestly, I definitely think that's my goal as, a, as a, like a, a content creator for Saturn is to just use that for video capture because right now, if you look at, like, really right now, for people that want to do video capture screenshots, honestly, just load up Mednafin and throw the ROM in, like, the video output for Saturn video capture is kind of garbage. As sad as that, like, like even mine is as nice as, as great as recap. There's, there's still some issues, but I don't. That's a whole other thing. A whole yeah, thing. I, it's definitely, it's definitely not anything, anything having to do with the, the recapping of it. Just the, the nature of the system and the revision. Like, like I said, we'd have to have like to go through each one and like recap it and get the perfect video signal, but. Honestly, that's why I want to go Mr. the Mr. Saturn Core. As soon as that's available, I'm going to switch to that. Just because the view output would be so much better. And it would be so easier to load ROMs onto it versus having to unplug stuff. But, yeah, as a Saturn producer, I need to keep the Saturn nearby. But, like, that's definitely the goal. That's definitely the goal is to get to using Mr. 100% for that video capture. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, uh, I won't deny... That, you know, Mr. is going to be the more ideal way of handling all these, like, older consoles. But personally speaking, I still prefer to play on my originals, uh, on my Sega Saturn. Um, but speaking of Saturn, you know what I kind of wish for it? I kind of wish that people would, uh, that people, totally not trying to call out Muramasa here, um, would just make a Saturn shell for the oval button models. They do. Do they? Yeah. They, let me go get the article on our website. I mean, so. You should be able to fit a for the so for the ZA zero and zero point fives. Those will not fit in the shell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well. Besides those, yeah. I even article right here. I'll uh, I'll put it in the discussion. Uh, let me see here. Replacements. I hope so because uh, don't get me wrong, you know I grew to love the uh, you know the look of the Japanese Sega Saturn, but at the same time, like I don't necessarily like it. I just you know grew to tolerate it. Yeah, but you know that article I posted in the the thread discussion is the it, it they, that's actually one where they actually did the oval the oval button Saturn rivet shells for it. Or oh wait no oh, oh you mean oval sorry that that's the round button you mean oval button placements yeah I don't think they've done that my bad yeah I was about to I say thought, like, I thought you meant yeah it's it's kind of late for me so I, I'm getting kind of I'm getting a bit tired so that's probably but I I could have sworn they did let me sweet sweet I could have sworn they did oval button but yeah honestly yeah. an oval button Saturn shell replacement would be kind of kind of cool but I can okay. kind of see why it'd be. A little bit harder to do. Yeah, it's looking like only round buttons on. You you can throw it, but you can throw a VA one and a VASG board inside of those shells, which are in those are originally in model one shells. 
It's uh, it has to do with how the reset button is mounted. Um, the reset button on like VA zero and VA zero point five models, the reset button is mounted mounted on the top of the shell, whereas um, VA one onward has the reset button mounted onto the PCB itself. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And honestly, I've never really been tempted to swap my shell for them because I love the white color of mine so much. Well, again, I grew to love my Saturn's look. I just would like to have a replacement shell because it looks nice. And plus, I think Muramasa has kind of made me addicted to doing shell swaps. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It, it definitely is a throwback to the Dreamcast shells back in the day. I mean, it's kind of weird. I like the Dreamcast replacement shells, but for some reason, the Saturn one, it's like I just want to keep it stock. It's a, it's a really weird thing. I don't know what's wrong with me with that, but I don't know. Maybe I just love the colors of the Saturn. It just, it just hit perfectly. It's like, okay, you get the black, you get the white, you get the cool, cool sh- different shell things like the, the This Is Cool Saturn. Yeah. I currently have two Saturns. Um, my main driver, which has a Fenrir installed and all that other stuff, I also have an action replay attached to it. Although I noticed that, like, sometimes I have to kind of fiddle with the action replay um, for it to work properly. Yeah, those, those, those cartridge slots are kind of kind of a bit flimsy. Yeah. Um, but I also have a black Model 1 Saturn uh, you know, North American model. This one has a dead, uh, has, I have a piece, a note on it that says dead laser. Um, I might have to try to run it hotter or rather run it a bit and then try again because that's going to determine whether or not it is a laser problem. If letting the system warm up for a bit and then running the disc will be fine then that tells me that it's a capacitance issue, not a that's, laser issue. That's correct. But if, like, even after letting the system sit idle for, like, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, and it still doesn't read, then, yeah, might need to investigate the laser. Yeah, I think the lasers are easily are easy to replace on those ones versus the Dreamcast. Like, honestly, I've every time I've seen any videos on replacing a Dreamcast laser, it's like, um, I just gave up. And it's like cool thing. So I don't even bother with the Dreamcast laser. If that's dead, I find another one, swap it. And if I can't do that, I just throw a ODE in there. I don't even bother anymore. Well, the thing is, though, you can't really. Re- uh, for the longest time, you couldn't replace Dreamcast lasers because there wasn't like a good supply of them. But recently, uh, on another installment of what you could find on AliExpress, they started selling Dreamcast GD. ROM lasers, and I was like, huh. Baba Booey. Alright, like, yeah, I'll definitely get a couple of those in that case. But, and, and I think they're like 8 bucks a pop or something like that, and I was like, that's... Small price to pay for a working, uh, a working Naomi GG ROM. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where they're getting them from, actually. Like, the yeah. lasers are coming from, uh, from Naomi drives. Mm, that hurts so bad. Like I actually replaced. It's kind of funny when I did my ODE swap. I put my 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 Dreamcast laser in my Naomi GD ROM, which actually is just sitting around now because I have the the, the Raspberry Pi. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, 
the uh so I'm not sure if you guys ever saw this, but there was like a Famicom uh screen that was just going around. I posted about this like a couple months ago, but recently it started like going around because someone made like a 3D printed shell for it. Um for like the past few weeks since that thing blew up, it went out of stock, but it literally just went back on stock like right now. Can you put the link in the chat? Link is in the description below. Let me uh, plug it in. But yeah, um, I kind of want to see that because I, I kind of might want to get one because my shell kind of looks like garbage. I'm curious about it. And my garbage, I mean, it looks like absolute, absolute sunburn disgustingness. Uh, I just posted it in the group chat. Um, I'm, it, it's a screen um, that I'm talking about. A screen? Uh, I, I talk. I was talking about something completely different. Like, oh, I thought this was a shell. Give uh, me a screen. So, okay. So, let me try to break break it down. So, this screen that is made to work on Famicoms was going around, like you know, kind of being noticed by people, and someone made a three D printed shell. For this screen, because it's just a PCB with a screen on it. So, um, wait, what the hell is this? What the hell does this do? Is this this actually puts video output from the Famicom onto the screen? Sort of. So, um, you see that uh, TRR uh, that TRS jack on the side? Yeah, that's your video and audio input. So, the way it works is you chain it from your Famicom's video output into the screen itself. Um, oh, I see. And you and you power you power it using the power from the, uh, Famicom, the Famicom itself. Oh, okay. Okay, I see what's going on. So that that's kind of uh, kind of interesting. So you can just like plug into a wall and just bring it anywhere you want. Kind of report. and that makes sense though because it's a little tiny thing, little tiny dingy. Like yeah, it, it, it it's pretty neat. Like I wanted to get one, but they were sold out. But they literally just put them back in stock right now. I got you. This, oh, for, I'm guessing you need to have it to, uh modded. No, I need to have it because I need to have it because I have an unhealthy addiction. No, you but I'm saying it. I'm saying for the Famicom, you need to, you actually would need to mod it for RF for EV output, right? Well, depends on the Famicom you use, though. Sure, if you're using an OG Famicom, sure. But what if you have an AV Famicom? Okay, that makes sense. And that's a lot smaller, too. Uh, huh. Actually, yeah, it is smaller. I never even noticed that. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, if I did do it, I'd probably want to get an AV modded one and use that because it'd be cute. It's like, put it on your desk and it's like, hey, I'm at a lunch break. Just keep the power plug plugged in, flip it on, turn it on, and play but some think, uh, play some Famicom games. Yeah, I think what makes this interesting though is the screen itself looks uh, is a four by three screen. So yeah, uh, it is pretty tiny though. So you have to squint to play that. Uh, 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 three point five inches is enough. And no, I'm not making a Voltar joke. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I was gonna, so. 
But it something of note though. That's how you use it. Yeah. So something of note though is that someone did report that the stock Famicom power supply is may not be strong enough to power this thing. So, you know, it would probably be best that you carry around like a triad or something. You know, it's because of the fact that the screen itself draws power. Well, you're not putting more voltage, it's just you're putting more power, like more, it just you're giving it more amps to draw from. That's all. Yeah. It, it's just, it's an amperage issue. It's like there's just not enough amperage. Uh, if you're using the, the, the stock the stock Famicom power supply, there might not be enough amperage to power both the screen and the Famicom at the same time. Yeah. Um, My worry is that giving it more amps isn't that going to harm the system in some way? No. Um, the syst- uh, Electronics will only draw the amount of amperage it needs. It won't, like, excessively um, take in all that extra amperage. So if your system's rated for one amp, it's only going to take one amp. Um, yeah, but when you run voltage, like too much voltage, that's when you break shit. Yeah, that's my concern. Is that, that going to cause issues? Uh, if you if you use like a uh, like a uh, two amp power supply, you should be fine. Yeah. Anyway, anyways, I was thinking about it, I was like, wait, Famicom's like a dime a dozen. If, even if you burn it out, uh, I guess maybe yeah, actually you probably have to mod it again. But I was gonna say just toss it in the trash and get another one. You'd probably like pick them up on the street in Japan. I'm gonna shut the chat off in a moment because my phone is at eleven percent and we've almost been doing this for four and a half hours. Damn. Yeah. That's a new record. Um is this actually the very or? the very first time I did this, I went for five and a half hours. That was like five months ago. Nice. But yeah, we had a lot of discussions and cool topics of discussion. Yes. Um, I might do another one at the very end of the year, or it would be like the first week of January, right before my semester begins. I'm good. Yeah, I probably should head off anyway. I've been folding laundry, and and after I started talking, I stopped doing it. (laughs) So... It's like a bunch of laundry sitting on the end of my bed, and I'm sitting surrounded by it that's folded. I just have not put it away yet. I'm just too lazy. Yeah, I've got a giant pile of laundry. Actually, coincidentally, I have a tremendous amount of laundry I have to fold, too. Yeah, so I'm going to probably just put on Stargate Atlantis, watch some episodes, and fold the rest of this laundry. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to shut the chat off. Um, Thank you guys for coming and joining. Appreciate it. Yep, later, bros. Have a good night. Yep. Yeah, later. later.